Welcome to number 78, the Great Base Tennis Podcast. I'm Steve Smith. I'm with Brandon Flanagan. We're in Boynton Beach, Florida at the FM Tennis Performance Center. And today is Chinese New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Steve. We could go through Chinese proverbs. It's also the day that Tom Brady retired. Sad, sad day. Love Tom Brady. I don't do too, too many adult clinics, but I, I'm teaching the overhead and you, know, you cross over and you put the... Racking what we call the quarterback position. I go, ladies, you know the guy who looks like me? I'm just a little taller. <laughs> Tom Brady. No, I love Brady too. I love Belichick. I love football. I mean, I just think the American sport, it used to be baseball, but I think people would agree that football is number one. Those of you watching on YouTube, I've got a New York Jets mug here. <laughs> so there were about 20 years I hated Tom Brady, and then in two years I really liked him. 1969, Joe Namath. Baltimore Colts. All right, tonight we're going to interview Michael McLaughlin, Mackie D. Um, we were going to interview him uh, the previous week, but we had a skip week. Um, I, I had said that uh, one of Vic Braden's dearest friends. And what we want to try to do with our podcast is just reinforce what our eight pillars stood for. And of course, Vic Braden used to call him Uncle Vic because once you got to know him, it just seemed like he was your uncle. Mm. What a great guy. But that he is the cornerstone. He's the number one pillar. Uh, there's so much information and actually so misinterpreted. But it'd be great. Uh, you're asking me uh, how many years I've known Mike. Uh, 43. Mm. 43 years. Seems like yesterday. But I'll call him up. Um, good Irish name, huh, Flanagan? Keeping the Irish thing rolling here. Two kinds of people, right, Steve? Yeah, those who can use a cell phone and those who can't. <laughs> I can hear you. Can you hear me? Hello? Mackie D., Mike McLaughlin, Brandon, and Steve. Looking forward to talking to you. Hey, hey Mike. Hey, hey. Great hey, guys. Have, great to have you on as a guest. Uh, I just introduced you as one of Vic's closest friends. Uh, and if there's anybody to reinforce uh, what Vic Braden stood for, you'd be the guy. Um, top of the list. There's, 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 I would say, unfortunately, um, you know, you and I are not spring chickens. There's not so many Bradenites around anymore. Um, well, that's, yeah, we're, we're getting, we're getting into that age group for sure. But I was uh, proud uh, to be big friend i uh i was proud to call him a friend and uh, i just you know thinking back on it i i knew him most of my adult life you know that was that was a real a real treat um and a real learning experience i mean that's what life's all about right learning as we go and uh boy i got a good a good start on that back you know back in the days of kodo Coda de Casa. Of course, when I say Braden Knights, um, Brandon, there's few people that have learned so much indirectly through Vic. Um, with, uh, we're just saying that Brandon has, uh, what we would say, the influence of, uh, of Braden with his tennis game. So many people that we've talked yeah. over the years. Um, yeah, when did you start at Coda? I You were there when I got there. I first went there in 79. 
to go to the academy, yeah. the United States Tennis Academy. Yeah, I I was just looking over. Uh, 77 was when Vic's book came out. I was back here, back east, uh, working construction because the University of Maryland didn't ask me back. Uh, and uh, teaching part-time for the park and planning, teaching tennis part-time. That's pretty much, I don't know if the state of tennis teaching has changed much in 40 years, but, you know, my roommate, uh, we played a lot of tennis, and he, he worked for the uh, local parks and rec, and one day he said, hey, we need a we need a tennis teacher for these kids, this kids' class. You didn't want to do it? I said, sure. I didn't know what I was doing, but I enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, took a, a course of a lo- from some local guy that was, you know, I was just trying to learn. But then Vic's book came out and boom. I mean, it just blew me away. Here's a guy that, you know, knows what he's talking about, that's doing the research. The, the photographs were just amazing. And, uh, and I took it out on court. You know, it, it worked. The stuff worked. I took it out on court for myself, for my students. And then that in the back, if you recall, in the back of the book, there's a reference to, uh, I think he actually mentions the tennis academy. And so I tracked it down and called up about it and found that they had the, you know, an academy for, for coaches. So I think it was 78 um, or 77 or 78. Uh, Jackie, my girlfriend at the time, we were living together. Now my wife, she we went out there for one of the academies. Steve might have been the same one, but um, but no, I don't think so. If you if no, you went seventy nine, yeah, yeah, you were there before. I was, yeah. You're so it was one. It was one of, yeah, it was one the one before that. And when I saw the place, oh man, it was just no contest. You know, I uh, I knew as soon as we got there, um, and then you know heard Vic and saw what he was doing um i don't know whether we talked about it there or on the way back but uh you know i pretty much made up my mind that we had to i had to get out there you know uh, and so we i think we stayed back here for uh, the, the following year and then uh, made the decision and jackie was crazy enough to go along with it and she was working for the uh the bell system, the telephone company, uh, which was, uh, a, a monopoly at the time cross country. So she was able to transfer it to a, a job out West. And so we had that to help us make the decision. And we just packed up a van and, and headed West, no, you know, no promises. Uh, Oh, before that I did, I did, we did make another trip out there where I sat and talked to Mary Lay and, and I met with, uh, Oh shoot! I forget the ex Koto uh, coach who was working in Southern California, who I just picked his brain about you know getting on the staff there. And basically, they had this uh, they had a uh, a process where you you had to observe. You had to go there and just on your own time and observe. Just go along, go through all the uh, drills and the and the uh, uh, sessions with uh, the coaches as an observer. So you can learn the process, but at the same time, you were being observed or whether you would, you know, foot in, fit in, that kind of thing. So uh, after that, that was just a vacation. We went out to, there to check 
the, the possibility of working there. And that's when Mary said, well, first step is to get out of here. We can't make any promises that you get on, but we do, you know, we do hire all the time. So, uh, we made the move in 79, uh, you know, headed West with whatever could fit into this, uh, panel van that we had. And I did have some friends, a guy I worked in construction with his, his family lived in, uh, El Segundo or Redondo Beach, I forget one of those up there, <clears throat> that we stayed with when we first moved out there. And I started the uh, observing process, and Jackie started working for the phone company. Uh, that was 79. And we probably met Steve at that 79 uh, Tennis Academy. Because I went to a, a, a few of them, both as a, um, you know, as a, a paid uh, student at the, of the academy, but also uh, when I was working there. Um, uh, the um, I think one point that you brought up is the uh, observing. It's a two-way process. It's a great way, um, really, not to hire by interviewing. You know, like, come on out and hang hang around us, and right, we'll observe you, and you observe us, and see if it's going to fit, see if it's going to work. Mm, good point. Didn't you get the title as a professional observer, Steve, after you were there for? Well, oh, wow. when I went there, yeah, Vic called me observer's observer. Um, I could actually, oh, yeah. I could actually imitate the, the coaches and go through, yeah, yeah. through the different styles, whether it was Greg Smith or Kim Spears, Rick Schroeder, Tom Fye. I mean, it was yourself, Batman. But no, I, I think you know, I, I went to the academy as a paid student twice. Then I worked there during the time that it was held. He had, he had the, it was called the USTA. It was twice a year. And then right. it was in April, then it was in December, then it was only in December. Um, and it was a packed house. Um, it was. With, uh, but no, I, um, they called me observers observer. What I did was I even turned the work down at, at one point, but then when they got busy, it was busier in the summer than it was during the school year, but Actually, that was back in the day when kids were only in tennis camps in the summertime. Mm. It was just a resort clientele. Um, it was it was pretty much booked the whole time. But in the in the summer, it was more students. I remember Mary Lay, the head coach, telling me you have to work because w- what I would do is uh, I just was flattered to be Vic's gopher, you know. So. <laughs> And then when he would, yeah. then after I'd been there observing for a while, when he would leave town for a special project, I would go all, all over Southern Cal in my van and, and you know, f- find a way to watch other people teach tennis, whether it was in San Diego, L.A. But um, with... Uh, yeah, well, he, uh, I, I was sad to see when they stopped doing the academies because those were just out of this world. Um, and, you know, the, the people that they brought in the information that, and, and these, the, the, uh, audience were, were teaching professionals. These were guys that some, some of them probably came into challenge and they did, they would challenge Vic and Vic, he accepted it. He wanted people to, to, uh, challenge and ask questions and, you know, uh, sh- show the proof. So, um, and I, I, I don't know if you were there, Steve, for the, when the, uh, shuttle astronauts presented. No, you, I, I was, I not, mean, I was not there for that. I forget what year it was, but I mean, what tennis outfit brings us astronauts from the space shuttle, which was flying at the time, wow. uh, you know, to do a presentation on exercise and zero gravity, 
you know, and that was, it was part, it was part, uh, Gideon Ariel, who was the big partner in the uh, sports research center had developed this, uh, uh, pneumatic exercise machine, uh, that wasn't gravity dependent. So that's, you know, part of it was his connection to, because he was tra- pitching that to NASA, uh, as a, as a way to exercise in zero gravity. But to hear those guys speak and talk about the effects of, you know, weightlessness and how, you know, uh, I forget what the, what the time frame was, but the, the time and space equated to like, uh, you know, two months of bed rest where you, you, the muscles start to atrophy. Just even though you're, you're moving around up there, you're, you're, uh, they had actual bone loss because that, that one G of gravity that we all face, you know, in our daily lives, when we raise our arm or scratch our head or whatever, we're, we're going against one G of gravity. It's not up there. So mm-hmm. the muscles don't get the exercise. The bones don't get the, the, they needed the four. That's what they were also looking at with the sports research center was the force plate, not just the zero gravity, but they could measure the forces, uh, when your feet were hitting the ground and the, uh, the, um, astronauts feet weren't, <laughs> weren't hitting the ground because, you know, they had, Nothing was bringing their feet down to the ground. So they had the bungee. In fact, I think they're still doing it, believe it or not. Bungee cord themselves onto a, a treadmill mm. so that their feet were forced down because that, that shock, that pounding that we get when we walk and when we run, they weren't getting it up there. So the bones were, were actually, you know, they were getting uh, showing bone loss when they came back. So that kind of stuff just blew my mind. You know, here at a, at a tennis place you know that kind of uh research on the human body was fantastic yeah that's so interesting can you think of any other uh different presenters or even just any of the presenters during these during these academy seminars well that 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 was the first i heard of jack grapple who Mm -hmm. uh you know then uh, i realized hey this guy's uh you know on the same par as vic as far as his his, uh, research goes because he was saying saying a lot of the same things, and they were reinforcing each other. Um, but um, yeah, geez, I'd have to go back through my records to think of think of any others. But it was always a good, and uh, you know, Vic was the was the key guy. And as I said, it was the interaction and him uh, taking on some of these guys that were challenging him on what what uh, what it took to to do the research and. Mm. Uh, so that was yeah. And I say Vic's door was open to anyone and everyone. Uh, mm-hmm. Such a giving person. I know we talked about how Vic was uh, portrayed incorrectly in the movie King Richard. King Richard. We oh, he actually uh, we, we we interviewed Jack Grapple. That was great. He spoke so highly of Vic. Uh, I remember. I tell people that um, Jack Grapple and I were both spoon fed at the same time. Even though you know Jack has his PhD in biomechanics. I mean, I think he'd be the first one to tell you that Vic was a self-made biomechanist, even though he's a licensed psychologist. But his intellectual curiosity right. was—it was just across the map. Um, mm-hmm. I've been on—I've been on—I was on several college campuses with Vic. Uh, one where I worked for ten years, and we went from when we walked across the campus. I said, "Well, I, he could teach in this department. He could teach in this department." With yeah. George Wilson taught us a lot about AV, audiovisual equipment. So we were. I could have been just an old sequence analyzer. We're in the basement of the Tyler Junior College Library, and Humble Vic goes, I think I could fix that. 
So, you know, here, <laughs> here he is in the uh, AV room fixing a machine that we're going to use. Um, uh, yeah, amazing, amazing individual. Oh, yeah. I, 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 sorry. I, I did remember the, the Caltech guys. Were you there when they presented their wind tunnel? Because you know, you, I'm sure you've heard Vic talk about the wind tunnel study, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, they, they, at one of the um, academies, the Caltech guys presented on that. I can't recall as much as the, the uh, you know, what it was about as far as, like, with the astronauts. That really hooked me. But, um, yeah, but he was. I mean, as, he was a scientist. He was an artist. He was a psychologist. He was a performer. I mean, he, he fit so many different categories. Uh, cinematographer, you know, I didn't, uh, all his stuff was always good. I mean, uh, uh, Rex Miller found, found out about that, the guy that, um, did, did the uh, Citizen Ash, the Arthur Ash movie that's coming out, um, that's got some of Vic's uh, archive in there. You know, that we pulled out when we were making the move. Rex was was gathering uh, footage for that. He wanted he was looking for pre nineteen sixty eight. At the time, he was the movie was going to focus solely on the year nineteen sixty eight because it was such a pivotal year for Arthur. It was such a crazy year for society with all the assassinations, mm-hmm. and you know it was the it was the first year of the uh, open tennis. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but as it turned out, you know Arthur was so much just like Vic. He was more than just one. He was so multi-dimensional, especially his, his uh, you know humanitarian work after tennis. That they uh, you know they they focused on his his whole life and calling it citizen ash but um yeah uh, brandon's question about visitors uh there was always people uh, i think of uh, bill jacobson who's one of our pillars uh with compute tennis being at the usta the united states tennis academy program he had but brandon worked for dave fish at harvard he's retired now but he was at harvard for 40 plus years brandon uh, was his camp director but i remember uh, I was assigned to spend the, uh, the first part of the day with Dave Fish when he came out to uh, mm. Cota de Casa um, to present what he, you know, he thought at the time was a great idea. It was called the unit turn, so to set the swing through body rotation instead of just through an arm movement, racket back. Um, Vic was so gracious, but he did tease the, the Harvard boys a little bit after they left. Of course, Fig, you know, he he's uh, he doesn't look at it. He's just a couple years older than me, so we're all in our early twenties. Mm. Um, but no, there was there was always people um, coming uh, in and out. Well, what I yeah, what I meant to uh, say regarding the Arthur Ashe thing is Rex Miller got this footage that Vic had from Forest Hills, nineteen sixty six. And that's what we pulled out. And, and Rex took it, and uh, Linda Zimmerman had it uh, transferred to digital. And then I didn't hear, you know, anything about it. And then Rex calls, uh, or like a couple months later, and he says, "Mike, he said I just finally got around to looking at the uh, the footage from that '66 Forest Hills." And he says, "Man, I said I didn't realize what a good cinematographer Rick was." He says, all his stuff is, you know, exposure's right on the money. The focus is good. The, the framing, the you know, composition, uh, you know, the guy, whatever he did, he really you know, put his whole heart and soul into it and tried to 
make it as you know top notch as he could. Um, so, why don't you tell us a little bit about Linda Zimmerman's father? He was big buddies with Vic. Oh yeah, John Zimmerman. Geez, you got if any of you uh, guys don't know John Zimmerman, just pick up a Sports Illustrated from any time in the 20th century, and he's he's all over it. He was. He was on the stage in the uh, for the Beatles, nineteen sixty four. Uh, Ed Sullivan first show of the Beatles, and um, he was the first guy to put a, a camera on a backboard, a basketball backboard. Uh, just you know, amazing. And I, that was another one of my treats, having worked out there, is when John came out to do a, sh- a shoot or two at the tennis college and watching him work was just amazing because he if the light wasn't right he made it right <laughs> you know as a photographer it's, you know and i i consider i was uh my dad was a, a better than average photographer and so i learned from him i learned on his Leica, and, and um and I, so that's why i felt comfortable in the in the photo lab uh printing the photos that, that we we shot and then also when vic introduced me to 16 millimeter film and you know editing in his in his uh, film lab his editing day um you know it was just to watch john zimmerman work was to watch a master at work you know and it was just and it it was a real lesson in how polaroid how many polaroids he went through remember this is before digital you know with film you had to know what you're uh going to put on the film so he went through tons of polaroids which was basically like previewing on a digital camera, but he would, he would get it right with the Polaroids before he, you know, shot the film. Um, but yeah, his, and then his book, his, his, the book is full of all, most of John Zimmerman's uh, photographs. And they, they have a website, correct? Yeah. Jay-Z, Jay-Z archive.org. Um, anyway, yeah, just, just Google John Zimmerman and just be amazed at the, at the photos, I mean, from across the spectrum of life. I mean, not just sports, but uh, entertainment and uh, just amazing photographer. And they they lived they lived up in uh, was it Palos Verdes or somewhere up there, and you know became good friends with Vic and Melody, and uh, so they spent a lot of time together. Yeah, Melody's uh, Vic's Vic's wife, widow. Uh, at the FM Tennis Performance Center, there's all sorts of cool tennis photos. Uh, one is uh, uh, Vic hitting the backhand where the rackets, high-speed photography. That, that that came from Zimmerman, correct? Right. So, so multiple shots, multiple yeah. exposures. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that was his way of, of showing what Vic was doing with, 16, with high-speed 16-millimeter film. Zimmerman could do in one image. Yeah, you can see the racket throughout the entire uh, swing. At, at every uh, you know point along the swing, just really cool. Vic used to tell us to take a regular piece of paper, just roll it up, and look at it like it's a telescope, and so your eye wouldn't be distracted. Remember, right, Vic, that's Vic, what he did with the. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say that you know Vic would do things like say walk into a stadium, close your eyes, and then open open your eyes and say look for red. Close your eyes, no, open your eyes, look for blue. Um, yeah. Uh, you know that when when people are watching tennis, you know just to like just to film the feet, just film the feet, nothing else. 
And Vic, yeah. Vic towards the end, uh, <laughs> the studio he had where he had the video equipment where, say, for example, so many kids, uh, especially on a two-handed backhand, can't really, you know, according to Vic, you can't get away with it on a one-handed backhand. Um, I think uh, Jose Luis Clerk, he used to do that a little bit. So, But it was it's so difficult to hit a one-hander with a racket that collapsed below your wrist. But a two, two-handers, it's a safe bet that you film 100 kids, not to be doom and gloom, but 98 of them are going to have that racket that collapsed. But Vic can just show just the wrist and just ask, ask the mom and dad, the son, the daughter, they're watching video critique, go, do you think this is the right position for the wrist to be in? Does this look efficient? Does this look strong? Um, but creative. When you say. So, so creative as well. Yeah, we say racket head collapse, Steve. What's that? What do you mean by that? On the backhand side where a kid will, you know, they just drop the racket head below the wrist. Oh right, and uh, Vic would just show that one segment, so you're you're not you don't see anything but just how the right wrist is collapsed, the right arm is bent, yeah. And then he said, "Okay, yeah. let me just show you where your contact point is, and your hand, the hands right in front of the belly button. So you're not dis- yeah. you know not distracted by looking at anything else, but that one point that you know to use a verb that he's trying to illustrate. Yeah, it, isn't that that goes back to and he he would tell the story of how he got into film was with the uh, index cards and putting the hole in the index card and watching yeah. Don, Don Bud. It yeah, allowed him to focus on uh, primarily he opened his eyes to how much Bud used his knees, or used his legs in the, in the shot. And so that's mm-hmm. and from, he went from a hole, hole in index card to, uh, you know, the film. Yeah. He hitchhiked from Detroit to, uh, from uh, Monroe, Michigan to uh, Detroit and he was in the rafters filming Don Budge's backhand. Mm. And that's still one of the best ways that Vic used to call it the cherry picker. You look up and you just see the red light. It's amazing. You know, remember those films he just showed of like VJ Armitage and Chrissy Everett and Connor? Right. Where the camera's yeah. sh- shooting down. Down, um, yeah. And all, all the years since I um, departed working with Vic, um, I don't know anyone who, sh- who films from that angle. No, and, and I, I this question you guys might be able to answer. I have heard, I can't, or either heard or read that with the new uh, analysis software, they can shoot from, at, you know, you shoot in 3D somehow uh, from one camera angle and then be able to view it from any camera, from any angle. In other words, there's no need to, to sh- have a camera above anymore is that accurate oh i would guess that you can do that um i don't i don't know of it being done in tennis but i think i think yeah the, i think the uh technology is there i haven't seen yeah. that. steve's more of a techie than me so he would know I'm more of a techie uh people would say that maybe not in comparison to brandon but in comparison to most tennis teachers yeah I would, that's true i think that's i'm a true. techie but not, not so much with uh the telephone and such but also coming back to like play site and I think PlaySight is a great tool, but it doesn't do grip. You know, the, 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 right. You know. Is that the thing that Jim Klein has installed at his club? No, no. Um, with uh, Jim has, um, it's for calling the lines, if I'm not mistaken. I should be able to. No, he's got, he's got, oh, he, he was may, telling he may, me. Oh, oh, he may have a PlaySight. I, I don't know. Is um, that the thing where that they, um, He's got screens on both ends of the court. I, I want to get up there and see what it is. The way he described it, it's really cool because they can, 
they can set, set up a game for kids where if they if they hit beyond the service line or they might make you know have it marked either the service line and then the four foot you know inside the baseline and they get points where the ball lands immediately you know that yeah. so if, wow. if they if they if they hit it past the service line they get a point if they get hit it in within that four foot zone in front of the baseline they get two points you know so, so they get it gets it encourages them to elevate the ball and you know hit it deeper and and it shows up on this screen opposite side so they can so they get the feedback immediately yeah it doesn't it doesn't focus on their technique it focuses on, on the results but right. as far as yeah that's you, you know described, you described that quite well one of his members uh has put that together uh jim klein for our listeners his name's come up before but he was a student of ours at tennis tech this two-year program we had and of course any student of mine is becomes a student of Braden. And, and, and Jim, as you know, and you were right there side by side, had a lot to do, so much to do with uh, Vic uh, being in the Hall of Fame. Um, you know, he knocked on a lot of doors in the beginning. But yeah, coming back to PlaySight, the, you know, the machine is only as smart as its operator. And, and it's like, well, it can give you all this detailed information. But if a kid is, you know, say, for example, the grip determines the angular racket face, the angular racket face determines the angular racket path. Um, in some ways, with all that technology, though, I would tell people yeah, you're, you're still better off with skip rope. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, yeah. With, um, you know, and that's amazing. Now, Vic used to always say that the research and practice are so far removed. That, yeah. That the the research that's done by so many people does it really, you know, work its way up or down across the board to people that are out actually teaching tennis. Vic, right. in that, that article, May 10th, 1976, Sports Illustrated, tennis is in the Stone Ages, and it really still is. In some ways, I think it's got worse. Yeah, yeah, because now you got guys throwing technology around, using it, but not being able to explain it. You know, they, you know if I hear one guy, you know, the, they just throw the word pronation around, and they may not even know what, what pronation is, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, we have a lot but of that was. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. We have a lot of kids that are pronating, but they're they're pronating because they're forcing to do that. You know, the toss yeah. the toss is now way out in front, so they have to accelerate the racket head. And they, as Howard Cosell, the late broadcaster, used to say about a punch, you pronate on a punch too, but you have to accelerate forward for that forearm and the serve to turn out. Um, yeah, so you can you can explain that, Steve. Most of the, the, the people that are out there throwing the word pronation around just throw it out there because it's a uh, SAT word, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, um, man, I, there's just so many thoughts running, running through about Vic and where he, his, his, his genius was taking that scientific information and, like you said, Steve, uh, getting rid of the line between practice and, and research. He was able to to take the research and help people put it into practice because of his communication skills. He was such a great communicator, great teacher. Uh, that, and, you know, so much of it was around humor and he, he knew that, you know, he knew that his humor was a teaching tool. You know, he described it as anxiety reduction. And if, if ever you had any question about people, you know, being anxious at, at a tennis lesson, you just had to be there. Uh, Saturday mornings or Monday mornings at the opening of a tennis college, 
when we, uh, the first thing we did after they filled out their uh, self evaluation, took them down on court and had them hit a ball for, for the photo. You guys probably know the, the photos that Vic signed and eventually he couldn't sign them all, but uh, the eight by 10 that was, we printed in the photo lab uh, of the person hitting a ball. So here are these people, you know, first thing that we have them do is hit, hit a tennis ball in front of everyone else. We, we lined them up on that, that one court. So we had to get them through quickly so they get back in the classroom for the start of the lecture. So they, they would uh, get one, two, three balls at the most, um, you know, and then uh, I tell you that these are, you know, captains of industry, doctors, lawyers, entertainers. And when, the, even when they had warm up pants on, but especially when it didn't have, you know, when you could see their legs, you could see their knees shaking, you know, as, as we're standing there, either feeding the balls or person taking the picture. This is a person uh, standing in front of their peers, and they're you know going to hit a tennis ball, and their knees are shaking. I mean, not I'm not talking about just one or two. This is you know, so Vic knew that you know he knew the the anxiety that was around learning a sport and how important it was to people's lives, and so he uh, you know he used humor to put people at ease to help them help them learn better. And I don't know anybody else that you know has done that on on the level he has. Vic's wife, Melody, she's a professional photographer. They, to our listeners, uh, you'd have your photo taken and people would be leaning on their back foot and the racket face would be open and they'd be off balance. And it was a courtesy fee. They just they hit one ball, one shot. And Vic, uh, I think scriptology is a hobby, but I don't think it's, it's a science. But at one time I had a scriptologist. Because back in the day, you would get handwritten notes from people. And I had, I remember Peter Burwash, Nick Balteri, Dennis Vandermeer. Uh, a few others in, in Vic, but Vic, he's a guy, when he signed an autograph, he never scribbled, he never scribbled his name. He would always ask someone what their name was and he would write them a note. Like, you know, I'll see you next year at Wimbledon, Vic Braden, you know, he was just such a class act, Vic. Yeah. And it's, it's speaking of script, his handwriting was gorgeous. This, yeah. Yeah, of course he comes, he comes from the generation that had uh, penmanship as one of the, <laughs> one of the classes, you know, early in school. Yeah. Uh, and, and yeah, he, he would take his time with all those photographs and write something funny or, uh, and you know, the, the, of course the angle, the camera taking the picture right in front of the hitter and, and the ball being in different positions, you know, you tried to get the ball and the racket in the same, in the photograph, uh, and the, the ball would be all over the place sometimes at the top of their heads. And, um, so Vic always had something funny but it was never funny at the person's expense mm-hmm. you know it was always uh genuine and, and and nice well you touched upon vic uh with his humor his presentation was so powerful he was like a professional comedian so i think many times people couldn't get past that presentation and hear the information right um, we talked about vic uh in <laughs> previous podcasts um i volunteered to show go for a winner the 1975 one take on double strategy. He was up, uh, the, mixed the chalk, up. Go ahead. Yeah, the chalk talk with the overhead projector. Yeah, you remember how Vic used to use the plastic. He would. He, yeah. He would uh, have the roll with the. He would just crank the plastic roll over the court, and you know every two seconds he'd have a clean screen. Number one, two, three, and four, and um, 
So over the course of a weekend, I had to watch that tape, you know, 10, 12 times. And that's where the light bulb went off. I didn't get it. Just like I would say so many people, but just over and over again, uh, the knowledge base to this day, it's like a myth all the way to the grand slams where the macho male ego, they put the woman in the deuce court. So if it's two right-handed players, the player in the deuce court always um, hits more balls just based on where the point starts. And it, you know, Vic used to say, well, the kid in, plays baseball. It's either picking dandelions or picking his nose. They, they, put him, <laughs> yeah. they put him in right field because not many balls go to right field. And how people That's run around, right. the, the righties are running around their backhand, pulling their forehand across their body to the deuce court. And then, you know, 85% of players are right-handed and they're mistaught the, the volley on the forehand side with an elbow in and a continental grip. And so many balls go to the deuce court. Um but, it, you know, it's frustrating. I think all these years later, people listen to us, and I think that they do think it's uh, what I would say is hero worship. When Vic passed away, I mean, so many people were being so gracious because he was, you know, even if you didn't really know the nuts and bolts, you just knew that Vic was a first-class guy. But you could talk to somebody for just a couple seconds or two and you'd say, yeah, yeah, I really knew the Vic Braden method. And, of course, they really, you could just, you, you just talk to him a little bit, and you know they didn't know it. Of course, that goes even deeper that Vic would say, um, there's no such thing as a Vic Braden method. It's just Gal- exactly. Gal- Galileo and Newton were here a long time before us. Yeah, yeah that's exactly right. Vic did not particularly take a liking to the, to the idea of a Vic Braden method. Yeah, that, uh, you know, the science spoke for itself. And uh, what he was uh, keen on was getting that information to the, each individual student. You know, that's where he was way ahead of his time because he always stressed to us to find out as quickly as we could how the person learns best. Uh, and, and just flat out ask him, are you a visual learner? Can I demonstrate for you? Are you a kinesthetic learner? Can I take your hand and, 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 and move you through the, through the stroke? Um, you know, do you, are you an imitator? Um, I, my, myself personally, I, I played some of my best tennis after after watching tennis on TV, you know, because I, I would go out there and try to imitate uh, what I saw. Um, so he was, he was preaching uh, differentiation of instruction, you know, years before. Uh, it, it's more, it's not quite, it's not mainstream enough. Uh, I, I have a, a, an adult daughter now, so with Down syndrome, so I, I was in, in the, uh, in the thick of the special education universe for her entire schooling. And that's one of the things that uh, needs to improve. We, we actually had a bill passed in, in Maryland in 2010 to create, uh, to have universal design for learning um, in the Maryland state curriculum. And universal design for learning is just simply uh, allowing flexibility and presence in how the information is presented and how the information is received by the student. It's, it's like differentiation of instruction, but it's, it's, it goes beyond that. It says that the information should be available in, in, in visual audio and, and print terms in, in whatever the uh, class is, whatever, whatever the information is. And, you know, that's, that's a, a bell Vic was ringing decades ago, you know, trying to get us to, to individualize the instruction, make it student centric, not, you know, curriculum centric. And, uh, you know, he was, 
I don't know if I ever got to tell him that. I think I did because he was, you know, he knew about uh, Aaron's the struggles we had with Aaron in, in school, and uh, you know, I, I reflect back on those days when he was, you know, leading the charge for differentiated instruction. And uh, someday it'll it'll be more uh, individualized in, in the classrooms, like it was at the at the tennis college. Oh, Vic had so many projects. I remember how excited he was to be teaching the blind. Um, Brandon, go ahead. Yeah, I just, uh, you know, I had the the privilege to meet Vic once. Uh, we were talking about this before we got on air, but I know that one of the clubs in Tampa that Steve was was a part of for many years, Vic came and, and did a weekend seminar. So in comparison to Andy Fitzell, who, who helped Steve start the Great Pace Tennis Podcast, my experience, my personal experience with Vic isn't as extensive, but uh, I felt like through watching his videos and reading the books, I, of course, got to know the, you know, what he was like on, on camera and, and all the, the research and, and education he, he put forth for the sport of tennis. But it just sounds like it was so much more about education than ego. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges tennis has. And just going back to, we had a podcast with Chuck Creasy talking about the message versus the messenger in tennis. And, and I think we, we all want the sport of tennis to continue to thrive. I think COVID in many respects has helped more people get a tennis rack in their hands, but just to have more tennis coaches focused on education and not ego. And I, and I just relate that back again to how you're talking about the USTA seminars, the uh, United, United States tennis Academy, not United States tennis association, but how there was such a diversity of presenters um, just to show the verses, I think probably a lot of seminars or you might get a talking head who has a big name because of what players they've coached as Steve would say for an elevator ride. And so I just, I'm just, you know, it's great just to listen to you talk about all that. And I think it are, of course the listeners are going to really enjoy that as well. But, um, that so far is, is something I would like to come back to. I know you even mentioned, the state of tennis teaching and has it changed since you first got your start in tennis coaching? And unfortunately, I don't think it's changed a lot for the better. Um, even even my myself and my business partner were able to meet through a, a story of circumstance where he walked into the tennis center where we first started coaching at based on the fact he saw a little kid's class being run by someone who was grossly incompetent and he knew that he could do much better. So, um, I know a lot of random thoughts there, but uh, that's kind of where my my thought process is going. Yeah, I, I've uh, I haven't been actively in the tennis trenches for a couple decades now. I mm-hmm. still do a, a Sunday morning thing with my other adult daughter, who herself is a teacher, and her a couple of her friends that we, uh, you know, just a Sunday morning workout where we reinforce all of the, the tennis college things. And it sounds like a, uh, you know, a, a court at the, at, at Kodo, Steve. I mean, if you, if you hear my, my, our Sunday morning things, uh, and I have a ball machine, I have a tennis tutor ball machine. I, I get that up. But, so they do hit the, the, the required 900 balls an hour or whatever, you know, we can fit in, but, um, yeah, and I, you know, I hear the the coaches uh, on the, you know, some of them I guess are getting paid, 
uh, that, that come out there and, and teach. And I had to tell this one to Tommy Warfel because it was just so, so bad. The guy, he's working with like, the kid must be eight or nine years old. And, you know, I, I had to refrain, I had to refrain from just walking over there and just, you know, talking to the guy because the kid's not doing anything. And, and the guy's getting more and more frustrated. And finally, he just yells out, just focus on doing everything right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> he's yelling this at a nine-year-old kid, mm. you know. And, uh, you know, he realized, I think he realized at the time that he did, because then he walked up to the net, he brought the kid in, and they talked. But, you know, uh, you know how I should have, now thinking back on it, you know, I should have walked up to the guy and, and, uh, but what do I do? You know, I, I tell him to read Vic's book. I do that all the time anyway. Tommy, um, Tommy Warfel for our listeners. Uh, he was on the Vic Braden tennis staff when Mike and I were, what a great guy. Uh, remember his bio, he had a win over Jimmy Connors in the 12s. He, he played at Ball State. I remember, and I think that's very important to watch people teach tennis, but Tommy would always ask, what what are you having a problem with? My you know the forehand is okay. Where are you missing? Why do you think you're missing? You know, he was always very good at entering the students' world. Um, you know, trying to probe a little bit and find out what was really going on. Um, why people are missing? You know, Vic actually. There's so many things. Uh, we've when I used to train tennis teachers formally, where it was an academic degree at the end of the at the at the end of the study. We used to watch Vic teach without the volume. You know, he was so animated. He was so good at just demonstrating. And then we would listen to Vic and we would, uh, the old TVs, you just darken the picture where you couldn't see him, you could just hear him. And Vic used to use the word no all the time. No, no. Yeah. And, but you know, the way he would say it, nobody would think he was being negative. Mm-hmm. And when Vic would do it, uh, uh, tennis teaching conferences, I used to tell them, Vic, just just ask people to come on out and hit a few balls. Does anybody want to prove their forehand, their backhand, their serve? Because his genius, he made him look like a, like a magician. But he gets somebody hitting the ball better, but he wouldn't just say, okay, that's it. So, I mean, he was a showman because he was just a, such a natural-born comedian. I mean, I don't think he had to work at being a showman. Um, there was nothing... Uh, pretentious about Vic, but he would just keep taking it further. That's better, but that's better, but right. And, uh, the um, that's the real challenge in being a good teacher is to reinforce with positive reinforcement, but uh, redirect with when they are going in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I think Brian Teacher was a great tennis player. Um, I'm going to guess that he won the Australian Open or he was in the finals. Of course, that was when not all the marquee players went, but at, in the 60s, Vic worked with everybody in Southern California. Of course, it was just private lessons, and but um, the story is that Brian wanted to change his backhand, but not his forehand, so Vic had him sign a release. I took, less, <laughs> I took lessons from Vic Braden, but not on the forehand. And, uh, you, know, you, you could just see Vic pulling that off um, because, yeah. you know, the kid would leave a smile on his face. Um, I remember Ryder DeHart, who uh, you know, became a very good player. Brandon trained with him. And uh, we had to help him out. We raised some money to take him to work with Vic Braden. And Vic was telling him not to f- let the left arm fly open. 
And Vic would like to have people, especially like Federer, when they're hitting down the middle and they're warming up, just go two, one, two. Turn with two hands on the racket, hit with one, finish with two. And of course, Vic being a psychologist, Ryler said, I really don't like that. I'd rather do it this way. And Vic said, okay, you could do it that way. Of course, you know, after the session, I had Ryler in the back room just grilling him. You know, <laughs> you're not going to do what this guy, um, you're not going to not do what this guy's telling you to do. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's that, that old thing, you know, when you're looking a gift horse in the mouth. With, uh, yeah. And, you know, in, in his own right, is with his hard at work and his mother's hard work, he became a very good player. But it'd be interesting to just speculate with some of these players that we've worked with. Like, he became number one in the NCAs. Where would have a rather to heart be without Vic Braden information? Or where would I have been without Vic Braden information? Mm-hmm. I used to call Vic all the time. I'd have a kid win a gold ball or, you know, they'd win a, a college title. And uh, we'd call Vic up and tell him, thank you. Because there's no way the kid would uh, have that success if it wasn't the connection um, that I had with Vic. Yeah. I think, yeah, you know, I... Good. Uh, the, you, you guys, uh, Steve, you stayed in the... To your credit, you stayed in the trenches. And um, I, because I was an East Coaster, I always felt that Vic should expand and that's why i you know volunteered for the overseas duty when uh you know he started opening up places in germany because i always envisioned a a, a full big braden tennis college just a cookie cutter like kodo on the east coast somewhere it would have to be indoors of course but uh, it was such uh an efficient place just the way things the the, t- the classroom that the video courts the the, the teaching lane and the running courts, you know, those four rotations that, uh, you know, people should be running through them now. I mean, it's still, it's a very effective way to get people to learn and, and get the repetition that they need. Um, but when I, so when I came back here, or when we moved back for family reasons, um, yeah, there's no great Nervous college here. I, I had never, even when I was back here, uh, before I went out to Dakota, I had never had the desire to be a club pro. I, you know, and then when, when I landed in Kodo and saw what Vic had there, I said, yeah, this, this is it. the, you know, the educational approach, the scientific approach, um, the facility, you know, the, the, the machines, the emphasis on machines and, and heavy repetition, you know, that was, uh, that's what really hooked me. Can you talk something, another part of what Vic, uh, I, I suppose he invented it or popularized it for sure, but the hitting lanes and the teaching lanes, uh, something that I tried to, to get a little information off of, uh, off of the Google machine. But could you talk a little bit more about, about that setup? Yeah, I love talking about that because Vic never completed the patent for it, but I helped him uh, as, as we planned some more expansion things. Uh, after I came back here and, and he was, uh, dabbling with, uh, you know, we put some lanes in at, uh, down in Florida. What was that? Star Island, Steve? That, right. I don't know if you remember yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Many times there. Yeah. When I was out in, uh, still out in California, uh, we put in some lanes down in La Costa, just standalone lanes. I always felt that the lanes could do, you know, if, if tennis, if clubs would, 
but it's, it's a major construction thing because there's, you know, you got the sunken pit uh, to, to uh, gather the balls and then mm-hmm. machines to, you know, to uh, convey the balls. Uh, but, but I helped Vic, uh, I found an attorney and we, we did the drawings and did the language and got Vic's uh, a patent for it, you know, and, um, that and the, uh, the ball machine. Yeah. They, um, they were the old baseball pitching machines. Mm. Right. Jugs. But, um, the, the patent that he, he originally has, and it's, you can look it up. There's a patent that he got himself which I still think is the better version because what was always the problem, Steve, with the, with the jugs machines out on the, the serve. And it was still the only machine that could throw a, uh, an 80 mile an hour serve. Uh, so people could pe- practice their serve return. But remember the big, uh, on the first, on Vic's teaching court, those, those big, uh, serve, I yeah. mean the big jugs machines. Yep. Yeah. What what was the biggest hang up with those? What was the, the problem with using those? Why weren't they efficient? Well, I mean, I remember Kim Spears. He worked there for so long. He could play around with those machines and have it sort of left-handed and right-handed. And yeah, but what 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 was what was their biggest bugaboo? What was the biggest glitch in the in the, those machines? Do you remember? I would I would say that uh, they were too sophisticated as far as just getting for for me. I I would guess that it was slowing them down. Well, it was it was similar to what they had. At the, the, the same problem was in the lanes, but in the lanes, they always had Rafael or uh, Juan. They always had someone up there uh, monitoring the, the, the feeding. The biggest hang-up was uh, gravity. Gravity, they, they depended on gravity. They had a, 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 um, a chain mechanism uh, that would convey the ball with a, with a finger that would carry the ball up and then drop it into a tube and the tube would, would drop down and feed the, uh, the spinning wheels, the jugs machine. Well, the tube depended on gravity and, and, the, and unfortunately too often the ball got hung up either in the tube or as it left the tube, because the, the machines ha- still had to be tilted up slightly depending on the, on the serve that the ball was entering the wheels at an, a slight upward angle and, and they would get hung up. So, Vic had a had a patent early in his career of a positive feed instead of and what he what he invented it for was uh, remember the holes in the court Steve the yeah. the, the collected yeah another genius thing I mean why you know, he put he had holes installed in the court with baskets in there so you could pick the ball just roll the balls in the baskets and pick the baskets up to load the machines but what Vic intended originally to do was instead of a basket in there. There would be a uh, a machine that that um, pushed balls up into a tube, and and uh, it was a plunger mechanism that worked on a uh, like a camshaft, and it and it pushed a, a ball up into a tube that and it, uh, as many balls as was necessary. And he he had invented this thing to, in order to feed the ball machine, so that it wouldn't have to be uh, gravity dependent. It would just you know push it right in into the wheels. He never completed that, but he did get a patent for that initial uh, ball uh, lifting system to lift the balls out of those ball pits. And one of you guys, one of you bright geniuses, should should still do that. It, it, it is a great mechanism because it doesn't depend on gravity. It forces the ball into between the wheels, and you'll never have a hangup. So that's my uh, contribution to your to your tennis program. 
Well, I know you weren't talking to Steve when you said bright geniuses, so I guess you're talking. <laughs> well, any of the listeners out there, uh, you know, for whoever's going to hear this, the patent is long expired. So, you know, it's not that, that, that Vic has any claim to it anymore. Um, but it's still, to me, uh, if anybody gets to, around to doing ball machines, uh, especially the type that Vic was talking about, where you never have to pick a ball up again. It just It's delivered from the court to the ball machine. Uh, that would be the system to do it. Well, one thing with listeners is that uh, 43, 43 years I've been talking to Mike McLaughlin a long time, and we're not supposed to use profanity on our podcast, but SIB and DIB. I'm, I'm, I'm the DIB, the, the dumb Irish bastard, and McLaughlin's the smart Irish bastard. <laughs> well, we, we, switch, we switch that title back and forth, depending on how we feel during the day. <laughs> with uh, Time Magazine, uh, called Vic's uh, Tennis College the best tennis facility in creation. But to come back to what you said is, so you'd use the big sweepers, they're on wheels, you'd roll all the balls into the corner, there's a basket built into the ground. Mm. But Vic had those baskets that you didn't have to bend as a tennis pro. You know, they were just, you just, the ball was right at chest level and you'd use what right. we called the Braden feed or the rapid fire feed. And I mean, over the years, feeding that way where you just put the racket in front of it and you tap, it's the best way to feed the ball really fast. Absolutely. But, Absolutely. But Vic used to just feather the ball when it was say, stay so, so low. I remember Welby Van Horn was like that where Vic, when you're trying to teach someone how to get below the ball, just nice and slow, just, just put it right in their strike zone. But I've had many teaching pros go, oh, you're not supposed to look like that. You're supposed to look like a pro when you're feeding. Um, right. That's, yeah. But he was always, I, he always to, trying to make things better. That's for sure. Yeah. And one thing I learned from him, uh, and I use a lot, is how often Vic's on the same side of the court, feeding on the same side of the court as the hitter. He's got his butt up against the net. He's got the basket right there. And he, like you said, he's feathering the ball to the person. And he, he's not on oh, on the other side of the court, 79 feet away. There's a 70, 78 feet away, uh, you know, hitting hitting the ball. He's right there so he can get to the person and, and, and take him through and talk to him closely. And then, you know, so. Yeah, he, uh, he would say the net's a barrier and put yourself on the same side. Um, yeah, yeah. All, all the students that went to uh, Germany to work for Vic, there was a boom uh, back with Graf and Becker in the, in the 80s. And it was a really interesting uh, environment where the the coaches were learning German as the, the Germans were learning tennis. It, it really made for a, a really I was I was one of them. Yeah. I, was, I I just used that in a in one of my notes to Mike Valentine. One of my favorite German tennis words was "Gegenüberliegenzeiten." That "Gegenüberliegenzeiten." Uh, was one of those German words that is a single word, but it takes a whole phrase, and all it means is on the other side of your body. Because on, on the serve, you know, you were trying to get people to uh, finish with the, you know, the tossing arm, you know, in in front of them, you know, across their body, stopping the uh, stopping the shoulders from turning, and the racket arm finishing Gegenüberliegenheit on the other side of their body. It's amazing you know, how how uh, Zoner and Zo helped out. Not this, rather, yeah, right. rather this. Hey, exactly. before, before I forget, uh, I had you send this to me just a few days back. Uh, what did Kim Spears say? What's the great Kim Spears line? 
Earthly. Oh, are we going to go there? Earthly. Are we, are we going to? Earthly and heavenly. No. You don't have to address it to anyone. I later can say that about Flanagan, but go ahead. No, it can be applied in a lot of a lot of situations, but uh, I think it's most evenly or, or accurately applied to these uh, the, the TV, the television preachers. They're so heavenly minded. They do no earthly good. They're so heavenly minded. Was, they do earth no earthly good. That was Kim Spear. Uh, and that's you know that that was another special thing about the place you know yeah and it's not the man it's not only the man but it's the place that he created and the people that he drew there people like myself and Steve and and uh, I don't know if you guys know that we had a a, a Navy fighter pilot that was there uh, we had a Catholic priest that was a, a coach um, we had the uh, I know at least one PhD, Mike Valentine, you know, was a, uh, was and still is PhD, and he's still heavily involved in, you know, Vic, he's still teaching. Um, yeah, he's working on a project on teaching to serve, correct? Yeah, yeah, and I'm, I'm helping him with that, try to get that, that long uh, text that he wrote to be more, uh, you know, approachable and, and uh, more universal design. Uh but yeah, no, I, with, and uh, David Kramer, you know, the, the Jack Kramer's son was, you know, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, I just wrote that down. Ted Schroeder, Rick Schroeder yep. was working Rick, there. So Ted yeah. Schroeder won Wimbledon the first time he played it. Jack Kramer. I mean, everybody in tennis uh, at that time, I mean, was using a Jack Kramer racket. Also Les Stofan is uh, his son was a part, yep. part-time substitute coach and, He's the one who had yep. the best serve. I think it was in the 30s. And the sculptor, um, it's just interesting tennis history where the, the sculptor goes, no, I don't like like that. And the, the, the trophy look, it's amazing how many people are telling kids, you don't have the trophy look. You don't have the trophy look. <laughs> yeah. The, yeah. the old chain puller syndrome where you're um, pull, you know, pulling the chain on the bus to tell the bus driver you want to get off. Just a quick, a very quick story about the trophy look. I started a... Uh, a petition um, on change.org to change to change the common tennis trophy. And one of the comments was, it just for a bit of fun, a bit of tennis education, but one of the t- comments was, what are you doing wasting your time with this? <laughs> it's kind of like, well, <laughs> you might be missing the point, <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, yeah, it's a, uh, it's just another funny, funny story about technique yeah. and just all the, all the common misconceptions. I'm sure you could talk about all those um, as well, but just, yeah, another. Vic spent so much time around the pros. You know, of course, he he promoted uh, Kramer's tour, but then also he just he did TV. You know, it'd be so interesting. He would come back and, um, yeah, he's just. I would say that Vic was so misinterpreted. We say there should be a book written. Vic is missed, and Vic was missed. Um, and, yeah. and I just don't understand where. Um, all this fact-based instruction, like say our governing body of tennis, um, you know, they're still trying to iron out a certification program. And uh, I was always flattered that Vic said that, you know, that Vic and I should have worked together. That uh, And I said, yeah, Vic, thanks. Uh, you go forward with a flashlight, uh, finding, finding new <laughs> things, making discoveries, and I'll go back with a club and hit people over the head. Did you get that? <laughs> the, tennis, yeah. the tennis court is a rectangle. Water yeah. does water does run downhill, not uphill. Yeah, I think that's where I mentioned yeah. earlier that education versus ego. I just think there's so much ego uh, in tennis. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Vic didn't have that. I mean, he was, he had that uh, ability and confidence to, to step in front of a crowd and, and uh, lay himself out there. I don't know if that's ego or just confidence, you know, to be able to, and be able to perform, to try the jokes that he thought were funny. You know, uh, most, most often uh, they were, but maybe some people like the guy with about the, the, the move.org uh, thing that that guy obviously didn't get it. Uh, but no, it's uh, yeah, that was, that was his genius. The way he, he was able to get that information across and uh, what, you know, th- there's something else I want to share is that the, and this, this was brought to my attention. I never thought about it, but one night, one evening, you know, uh, Saturdays and Tuesdays, I think, was the beer night uh, where, you know, after the session, we provided uh, some cold ones for the students and they would hang around and have a beer or two on the deck. And we're sitting, me and, and a couple of three, I don't know if you were Steve, we were there that day, Steve, but uh, a couple other coaches are sitting having a beer with this one student. It was a real nice guy. You know, some of the people, some of the students you got closer to, got to know better. Others, they just, you know, kept their distance. But that was another benefit of working there is some of the really incredible people that you met. Um, but this guy was a uh, salesman for IBM. And he started this explanation of of how what we are doing are, is a tougher job than he has mm. as, as a salesman. And it really opened my eyes about because a lot of what we were doing, you know, Vic, Vic got the information across. Vic got them wound up and laughing and have and you know reduce the anxiety and all that. Then he turned them loose to us on the court to convince them, and we had to convince them to try these things. And that's what a lot of it was was just convincing people to try something different, try something new. And Vic said it right in the classrooms that you know the the fear of change is is a very powerful thing, you know, uh, and and very uh, a disincentive to to learning. So we're out there, you know, try, trying to convince these people. And that's what this IBM salesman guy was saying. You guys are basically selling, the, you know, what Vic's putting out there, and it's up to you to, to do it. And he says it's tougher than my job. And, and this is the way he put it. He says, because as, as an IBM salesman in my job, I do maybe 15% of my job is face-to-face with the customer. 85% is back, you know, follow-up, paperwork. Uh, you know, that kind of thing. He says, you guys are out there 80, 90% face to face with these uh, people trying to sell them on this, to, you know, to, on this technique, on this information. And it, that really struck, struck me then. And it still strikes me now that that's, that's where good teachers are. You know, they're part of it is, is uh, especially uh, teachers of bodily body movements. You know, when you're trying to get somebody to uh, be aware of their body, what they're doing and, and uh, with the racket and the ball and, and, uh, you know, it, it, a lot of it is a sales job to get somebody just to try something different. So, um, you know, that stuck with me even, even to today. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I know that Steve mentioned earlier through Steve's connection, uh, providing the curriculum for the tennis camp at Harvard for many years. I was, I was privileged to, to be the director of the camp one year and we had a staff of approximately 30, you know, college-aged individuals who played college tennis, different levels. Maybe they, they didn't play college tennis, but 
certainly all young and opinionated. And during one of our, our talks prior to going on the court coaching kind of 150, 200 screaming kids, I was illustrating how to teach a more efficient forehand or backhand or whatever it was. And I said, this is how you're going to do it. Showing them an example of, of working with a player one-on-one. So we have kind of 10 kids in our group. How are we supposed to do this? And, and I then explained to them, well, you can do it this way, but at the same time, you have to get the kids to buy in. It's more of a, of a sales type job. Like you said, you should be able to convince the kids that if they stand on their head for 20 minutes, it's going to make their tennis better. But you, there's definitely a sales element to, to teaching tennis. Um, but I, I wanted to come back to, we just touched briefly on the professional players that were around Vic's uh, tennis college. I know that uh, it wasn't maybe Vic's primary motive to, to work with the professional players, but I, I know that you had quite a few stories of the players that he did spend a lot of time with. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Well, Steve probably has more of that than me, but the one, the one story that still sticks with me today was, uh, and Steve was there at the time, was when Tim Gullickson came. And he was, it's not that he came only for Vic. He was coach shopping. He had been to uh, Lansdorp and um, probably went on to other coaches, but he he wanted to see what Vic could do. I guess he was in, in a in a slump and he, he was looking for any kind of help and he wanted to see what, what Vic, what help Vic could provide him. And Vic jumped all over it. You know, he put him, they got the cameras out and, and filmed him from all different directions. I don't know if we had the cherry picker then, but, uh, you know, filmed his forehand, backhand, serve. And, um, you know, being close to LA, he could, he could get the film process right away. He could, he could expedite it. And so it would involve, you know, running up to, to the lab. But I'll never forget it was uh, Christmas Eve Eve, um, maybe 81 or what, what year was it, Steve? Did you say it was 81? Yeah. You were, when we were talking about it the other day. Yeah. yeah. Christmas Eve Eve, and the film was going to be delivered that that evening, and Vic was going to go over it with uh, Gullickson. So I, I told Jackie I got to be there for that. So I went, drove back up to Kodo and sat in the classroom with Vic and this, here's, a uh, this working tennis pro. I don't know what, what rank he was at the time, Steve, but I, you know, I was a rel- still a relatively new coach at the tennis college. And I knew what we were telling, uh, John and Jane Doe out on the tennis court, you know, about how to hit a tennis ball. But here I am with Vic and, and a playing professional. And now I'm going to hear the, the real sauce, you know, with the real secret. So, that Vic has been holding back. And so, you know, put the film up on the sequence analyzer. I think Batman was there too. The Bob Batman. Um, great Batman player. Bob Batman. Yeah, he was great, great, but great b-ball player. Uh, so Vic starts going through Tim's backhand, I think it was. And, and damn, if it's not the same stuff, you know, shorten the swing, get the rack lower, knuckles down, I mean, the exact same stuff that he's telling these people, you know, in the opening lectures. Here he is telling a guy to, you know, uh, as a way to get to Wimbledon. So, you know, it was famous by Friday. It was funny, but it was 
there was truth in it. And that was that was the beauty of his humor. There's truth in it. And then when the next day, when uh, Steve's uh, hitting hitting balls with Gullickson and Vic's working with him on the court, just to see it in action on the court too, get trying. And the, and the real kicker there was, you know, we're talking about sales jobs. Here's a guy that this is his bread and butter. He has to make changes to improve. Man, it was just a real treat to see somebody that knows that is that connected with his body and his racket that can make a change like that immediately. You know, when Vic asked him to do something, boom, he did it. No, no twist in his arm. No, you know, no sales job there. He just, you know, he was able to do it, and and, and he saw it. I mean, he saw the, the the improvement. He saw the difference, and that was, you know, that was the that sealed the deal for me. That that uh, you know, Vic was was the real deal, and uh, you know, that's why I still. Even though he's gone, you know. That was late. Uh, Tim and Tom, twins from Wisconsin, um, in their career, uh, they were in the the finals um, playing. Uh, they were in the Wimbledon finals. Their story is amazing. They uh, grew up playing three sports, and um, they, tennis wasn't really one of them in one sense. They played uh, football in the fall, basketball, baseball, but they grew up across the street from tennis courts. And they both went to northern Illinois, and then um, Tom and Tim, you know, they finished. They were there all four years. Tim had an idea that he was a lot better than he thought he was once he played in the NCAs. And that's back when all the matches were five sets, and Tracy Austin's brother was taught by Vic, Jeff. Um, so here's a kid from northern Illinois, and, you know, he was competitive with someone from UCLA. Then Hank Jungle, who was a retired Air Force officer, really believed in Tim, and he was teaching, I think, at the Kettering Racquet Club in Xenia, Ohio. So he went out on the tour. He got as high as 17 in the world. So Tom, I don't think it was two years later, but maybe a year and a half. It's kind of like, if you can do it, I can do it. So he goes out on the tour. He was ranked in the top 50 longer than Tim. And, of course, everyone loves the Gullicksons. I, I did corporate out, outings with him. I don't know Tom. Uh, I was on the on the road with my son Connor out in Hawaii, and, and that's when Tom was uh, with the USTA. So... I have been around him since those corporate outings back in the in the eighties. But um, I remember so many things from Vic working with Tim. One was I'm invited to breakfast because I'm going to be the hitter, and it's Vic Braden, Gideon Ariel, and Tim Gullickson. And you know, 17 in the world, the guy's a, a big time tennis player, and Vic is tape recording it, just audio tape. And he goes, "Well, first of all, forget anything the psychologists say. It's all about physics." And then I remember getting Ariel saying uh, at that time Borg was, you know, Borg, and uh, he'd been in the Wimbledon final, you know, six years in a row. He won it five straight. And you remember getting. And, and if I can, if, if I can interrupt, Steve, and say that this was also not long after that very popular book, The Inner Game of Tennis, which was all about psycho- the psychology of tennis. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. with uh, but getting Ariel told Tim Gullickson. I'm going to build a machine that will beat Borg, and therefore it will also beat you. <laughs> because, you know, <laughs> you know, you have to be able to hit targets. Actually, Tim had a place in Boca West. I remember being there one time, and I think it was his nephew. Um, wanted to, so we're at, at his townhouse, and he goes, his nephew said, you want to go see, it was during the Christmas holidays, you want to go see uh, Lendl's townhouse? So... Even when you're uh, when one of your relatives is 17 in the world, it just doesn't add up if you, you're, you meet somebody who's number one in the world. 
Yeah. Yeah, those guys were uh, loved by everybody, but with, uh, no, so I introduced uh, Tim to Jack Roppel, and then they became fast friends, and then uh, Tim was on the cover of Jack's first book with, um, but I remember um, I was the hitter, and I go, Vic, uh, you know, you got to get somebody who can hit the ball bigger and better than I can. So Bernie Mitten, a South African, there were so many pros at that time that were living down in Newport Beach. Um, it was so much fun at that time in, in, in the 80s. Um, the, yeah. the John Wayne Tennis Club, they had that rating system, one through 10. Bob Lutz, Stan Smith, Rod Laver, you know, they're all members. Um, Tracy Austin was a member. Um, Emerson was given lessons. I remember watching Emerson. We talked about this on the podcast where, um, you know, I became buddies with Roy Emerson and I could just hang out and watch him teach. And one day uh, I told a story often, Billie Jean King started snapping at me. And Roy Emerson told Billie Jean King, um, if, um, if you don't apologize, and I was with Kim Wittenberg, if you don't apologize to Steve and Kim, this lesson's over. But the reason I mentioned that is all those all, not all those players, uh, Vic knew all of them. And he knew their games really well. But I think the story with Bob Lutz, um, I was with Tim Gullickson and Bob Lutz, and, you know, it's just like, who cannot love Vic Braden? But you remember the Bob Lutz story where Vic wanted to show the world on his PBS tips that when you hit a slice backhand, the racket face is nearly vertical to hit. Yeah, yeah. and he had him in, had him in slow mo, right? Well, yeah, so the USTA, just yesterday, they have a tip on how to hit underspin. And they have the person demonstrating put the racket face flat on top of the net, and that's how you hit slice. Oh, my God. That might be how you take a knife and cut put, cut butter or cheese. But So anyway, Vic, nice guy Vic, he wants, he's been watching Lutz. He's known him since he was a kid. He loves his, how he plays. He's one of the best doubles players in the world. And... So Vic calls Lutz up because I'd like to use you for a tip on PBS. And Lutz goes, I disagree with how you teach on a spin backhand. And Vic goes, well, I'm sorry to hear that. I apologize. Um, you know, maybe, maybe another stroke. So Vic thought about it for the minute. He called him back and said, I'll tell you what. We'll just film it, and then we'll talk about it. And then Bob Lutz said, yeah, okay, that's fine. And then Vic hung up the phone and goes, we got him. <laughs> yeah. And then, then what Vic took, did Vic what Vic did with the film is Lutz said he went down at 45 degree angle. So Vic puts this yellow piece of tape going down at 45 degree angle and Lutz's racket should have matched it, but it goes right back up. I mean, you know, you don't stay down when you hit underspin either. It's like Johnny Mack um, who says he stayed down and, and Vic had right. a film of him lifting up on both toes and, yep. uh, you know, same with like Jimmy on the service. He could just toss to the right. And he did with getting able to do work with Jimmy and then afterwards, you know, and Jimmy always, fair enough, gave credit to his mother. He goes, Vic said, you know, we'll get him out, out to the left because he's lefty. But Vic had some one-liners. He said, yeah, Jimmy, his uh, serve goes uh, 74 miles an hour, but his grunt goes 102. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Gideon told uh, Jimmy, he goes, well, your movement is spastic because he'd actually right. he got blisters on the top of his feet. And, of course, that's American slang that calls some kid a spaz. So Jimmy, Jimmy, didn't right. like, Jimmy didn't like that. That's a clinical term, yeah. Yeah. Coming back to Vic, one time I was in New York City with Vic, and he was being mobbed like it was Beatlemania. And I was many times I was with Vic where I'd have to start answering questions because um, yeah, there's there just no way that he could answer all the questions that the people were talking to him after a presentation. 
And I remember one guy just being belligerent. And um, he said, he's telling Vic over and over again, just pounding Vic, you're all wrong about Tracy Austin, all wrong about Tracy Austin. And Vic said, you know, this, and the guy goes, this is what Tony Trabert says. And Vic just said, Tony Trabert and I are really good friends, but ask Tony, he'll tell you that I forgot more about tennis than he knows. And that's about the only time I've ever heard Vic do that. But I mean, I've heard Balateri when people have asked him about Vic, he goes, oh, no, no. He goes, and he'd say it just the other way. Balateri has been on record many times saying he's forgot more about tennis than I know. And actually, that's just so sad that, um, you know, there's some people that are leading the way in American tennis, and they're looked at as highly acclaimed tennis teachers. Um, and, I mean, if you could just be there with a, a, a buzzer, every time they said something that's not true, beep, 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 <laughs> beep, beep, beep. beep. It's just amazing how it's, I mean, it's still, tennis is still in the Stone Ages. Oh, speaking of, speaking of buzzers, Steve, uh, the, uh, the Basin Anticipatory Reflex Timer, remember that? Yeah, yeah, the stream of red lights. The thing on the, thing on the wall? Yeah. Yeah, it's in Mike Valentine's garage right now, Wait, waiting for a new home. That was, a, that was you got, if you guys don't, anybody listening doesn't know that that was a, another tool that Vic used in his lectures and it's basically by I think her name was Ann Basson uh, who developed this very simple thing that sends a, a, a series of lights down a uh, maybe 16, 20 foot line along a wall and you had a, uh, a cord with a button to push um, trying to time your push of the button at the same time that the light, the last light lit up. So it could be sent down at different speeds and Vic would start slow and, and the thing would go down to the light would go down the, the wall. And then as it reached the last one, you click the button and the, the uh, box, the display would give you a readout as to whether you, how close you were to timing your push at the same time that last light lit up. So you, in other words, you had to anticipate when the thing would get there and the faster the light would go down the line, the faster, the sooner you had to anticipate and push early. So it just, it measured your anticipatory reflex timing. So, um, and it was basically to, to use to show people that everything you need to do for the point of contact for a tennis hit has to be done long before the tenant. Well, it was not long, but 200, or 100, is it uh, 125 milliseconds or 250? No, it's 125 because 250 is the other 125 is the signal coming back to your brain. But all the preparation for the hit has to be done uh, 125 milliseconds because that's the time it takes the signal to go from your brain to your arm or, or any part of your body to make a motion. So when you were less than uh, or more way and most people way, way more than 125 milliseconds late on their uh, trying to push that that uh, button on the and anticipate, so it's just a, an example of how long uh, it takes the signal to go from your brain to your hand just to push a simple button. And here you are trying to factor in all these body motions for a, a hit that only lasts four to six milliseconds. So everything has to be done long before the the contact point. And then you know the follow up to that is doesn't matter what happens afterwards. <laughs> you know that's. Vic would always say that the follow throughs just sell, sell tickets, but we use the follow through as a as a teaching tool to to tell the student what you know what happened 
for the for the majority of their strokes. But uh, yeah, that uh, yeah, Vic uh, would do this, and I think this would be great for tennis <clears throat> teaching pros to go out and do. You can do it quite easily. Now, Vic was a really good athlete. He wasn't very big, but he was a very good athlete. He was a starting quarterback. Um, he played basketball. He won the high school state championship three times in Michigan. He was a, a scholar and a and a jock all in one. But you can rally with someone, and as soon as you hit the ball, just automatically take your racket backwards. You don't even have to have a follow through, and you go right. you can rally. Just get the ball right to hit, and then take your racket immediately backwards. Because now yeah. I mean that's like come over the ball. So, I mean no, and now it's turn the doorknob and the windshield wiper and right. Uh, it's just yeah, and he would and he would do that thing that Steve just uh, explained, hit and immediately. He would do that in his lectures, and it would just it, it was a comical, uh, you know, move, and we get a lot of laughs with that, uh, you know. And he would also demonstrate other other uh, follow throughs that don't really matter because the ball is gone; it's no longer on the racket, you know. But uh, again, we did use the follow through as a teaching tool to get people to stop and look and see where the racket is in relation to, you know, their body and where the ball is supposed to be going. Well, I do wish that Vic uh, had had stayed with Brandon asking about pro players, that Vic had stayed with uh, advanced players. Of course, he was in Southern Cal. Um, what a time, the tennis boom, and, you know, everything he touched turned to gold. He worked with so many top juniors. But years later, I was doing a clinic with Vic for two weeks in Aspen and near Aspen where he had a ski college. And uh, I said, Vic, you should be at a place like Saddlebrook. And so I go back and, you know, I had people flying in to work with me. It was the summertime. And and uh, he said, Steve, uh, can you meet me in Tampa? I wasn't living in Tampa at the time. I lived in Tampa for 15 years. But I said, um, no, I can't. I just promise these people they're here. I, there's no way I can go down to Tampa right now. I'd just been out of town for two weeks with Vic. So he went to Saddlebrook, and that's when Capriati was there. She was like the player. There's been different times where Sampras was the player, or Johnny Isner was the player. And, um, you know, Jack Grobble gave it, gave it a go there. But Vic, um, and I think Jack would uh, readily state this, although Jack was so well-informed, but Vic had spent so much time with the pros, and he really, he had played the game. Um, he, he actually used to refer to himself as a donkey because he would, you know, he would be a tune-up match on the uh, exhibition tour back in the barnstorming days. Uh, you know, he had stories about when he was playing Bobby Riggs and won the first set and Riggs just trash-talked him and uh, got inside his head. But um, no, so Vic, uh, he left the Kramer Club with the idea that he would, within teaching adult camps he would be able to generate more run more money because he was funding his own research and he used to say that's nine hundred dollars a shot i know andy's talked about that that some of the things vic used to do for nine hundred dollars a shot you can do on your telephone now Mm -hmm. yeah but even though technology has improved so much tennis teaching it's still either going backwards or going in circles all you have to do is i mean i was at the battle of boca this last weekend and you know, I mean, unfortunately, it looks like a lot of kids that have learned to play at a public park. You know, they're just self-discovery, and mm-hmm. they haven't really been trained by instructors. But, you know, they're they're out there, and they've got great spirit, and they're competing. And, um, the uh, you know, I watched a sparring session today with a uh, 
sparring partner and a young gal. She's out there, open racket face on the backhand, but they're there for an hour and a half and just pounding ground strokes. There's no volleys, approach volleys. Um, with uh, Go ahead, Brandon. Yeah, one thing that I remember just reading about Vic and, and learning about Vic through Steve and the, the whole concept of the ski college. I uh, hoping you could talk about that a little bit. Mike, you there? Mike. Oh, me? Oh, is that directed to me? I thought yes, you were directed yes, at sir, yes. Yeah. No, that's because my nose looks like a ski slope. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you and Bob Hope, right? My father um, looked like Bob Hope. Actually, drunks would go up to my father and ask for an autograph. No. Yes, yes. You, 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 no you, you got to be proud of that uh, slope for the nose, baby. Wow. No, I, that was that was at a time when I had already come back here. Okay. Um, they did. Uh, now I wasn't invited to be. Now this was not the ski, but it was Vic's. I guess maybe his early uh, ventures into Aspen, into the, you know, that part of the country. Uh, he asked me to come back to and help teach a tennis college at Aspen. And I had never been to Aspen, you know, it was a beautiful place. So get together with, you know, some old coaches. And so I did that. I forget it was 90, maybe 91, 92. I don't know what exactly when it was, but, uh, no, I was not, uh, I was not there when the, when the, uh, he ventured into the, the ski college. Yeah. You remember Gail Godwin, she was the coach at UCLA. Yeah. She became the head coach of the ski college. And uh, I, w- I went out there to teach a couple of times, but never in the winter. I was only there in the summer. Beautiful place. Um, yeah. If people want to get online, there's a tribute to uh, Vic Braden, and Gail talks about the ski college and what he brought, yeah, I think what his, he brought to the ski community. His, his teaching techniques and philosophy and, you know, uh, student-centric uh teaching methods, I think it could carry over into any sport, really, and, mm-hmm. and any any uh, endeavor, really, because it's, it's a universal way of, of teaching. So, uh, yeah, I, you know, I don't know how well it was received as far as skiers go, but tennis-wise, I would love to know, you know, if somebody ever wants to try to do a, a poll of, of professionals, how many of them were influenced in one way or another by Vic, either by reading his book, watching his videos, um, uh, you know, seeing his lectures. Uh, you know, imagine if Vic was still with us and, and still in good health. He would be rocking those TED lectures or uh, those master classes that are now being, you know, put online. Um, you know, it's uh, he was such a great to backtrack, I think I might have just mentioned on the tennis channel instead of on YouTube. But if you went to, if you go to YouTube, um, there's not as much of Vic on YouTube as you would think. The same mm-hmm. thing with Gideon Ariel. But you know, certainly, you can find Vic and Gideon interviewing athletes um, um, on YouTube. Um, but no, it's 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 unfortunate that um, I think that number is diminishing. Uh, the people that are still carrying the torch. Um, well, well, I'm not, uh, not necessarily talking about carrying the torch, Steve, as far as just people, players, professionals that, or even let's take it down to the college level, you know, uh, top, 
some of the better college players that have been influenced in their learning by Vic. His information is not necessarily his personality because he's not not all of them were you know were able to attend any of his classes or anything. But I mean, the, it's all in the book. You know, tennis for the future. What better uh, title could there be? Because this, this, the information is still applicable. It's still relevant. It's still good, solid, evidence-based information. So, you know, there's still there's got to be people out there looking at that and say, yeah, this stuff makes sense. Well, we had Mark Walpole on the podcast, uh, British coach. He actually purchased the Vic Braden Tennis College, and then I, I was part of the. You know, how would I go? The deal. Uh, Sam Olson invited me out. At that time, my former wife and uh, Craig Tiley. Craig Tiley was kind of my right-hand man at that time. And um, I was saying, hey, there's there's a place in Vero Beach where the owner wants me to come down and start this program. And so anyway, we decided to go out to California. But then Sam, you know, he he changed the deal. that happens. Uh, it was just a handshake deal. And so anyway, I go back out because his third club, the, the owner said, well, if you're not in, I'm not in. And he insisted I come back out. So I said, went out for a couple of days and I said, well, that's how I told this owner. I said, would you like to spend some time with Vic Braden? Because I said, if I come to Southern Cal, that would be the biggest goal is to get Vic reconnected with junior tennis. And at that time, Olson, um, Mark was just a startup, as he said, just and he climbed the ladder very quickly with, with Sam, but he was just, he, I think he at one time had 12 people that I had trained and he, Sam was somebody I had trained. Long story short, short story long. So I, this gentleman's, um, it was fortunate. We, I went out there for one day just to spend time with Vic and then the owner came out the next day. But the day I was there, just Vic and I were going to sit down and just talk about getting him back in junior tennis throughout Southern Cal. And Stan Franker chose up who ran the Dutch Tennis Federation. He had played tennis at USC. And if people, all, all people have to do is watch Richard Krychek, who won Wimbledon, I think, in 96. Just watch him hit a serve. Um, it's all there. It's all there. Yeah. So, so Stan shows up and he says, uh, you know, I just want to hang out today. And, and um, at that time, the, the tennis college was not going strong. Vic was in between what he should do with that um, operation. and But that's just an example of... Uh, you know, how many people would know that the Dutch Tennis Federation um, used Braden's book, in, um, Tennis for the Future 77. Uh, Ruben Perchek, who you housed, uh, you and Jackie, I, I brought him to the tennis college. He was good enough to make the Colombian Davis Cup team. So actually, he's, it's a fun story. He was at the uh, Orange Bowl, and I couldn't get down there for the first day. And Danny Cooper, who later became a head coach for Vic Braden in Europe, Cooper was going to be at the Orange Bowl. And he said, well, how will I find him? I said, just walk around the courts. You'll know who he is. All you got to do is watch him hit a ball. And sure, yeah. and sure enough, uh, he um, um, he spotted Perchek in a heartbeat. And uh, the coach from Israel came up and said to Perchek, you like Vic Braid? So people knew. <laughs> so people knew. Yeah. Like at one time in Israel, the just like in China, I mean, people used tennis for the future. And... Um, no, it, it really should be. It's one of those books that you got to memorize. It's not light yeah. reading. You know, it's, it's just, you got to read this over and over again. You have to study it. You have to know the information. And take it out on the court. I, I tell everybody, take it out on the court. Do some of the drills that are in there. Yeah. 
Yeah. But Vic was not, um, you know, Santana passed away um, just a couple of weeks ago. And I was with him, actually, I was with Vic. And the purpose was for Vic to meet Danny Cooper. And um, so here's a guy who's won Wimbledon, famous, famous story. He goes, grass is for cows, but he still won, still won Wimbledon. <laughs> we won the French Open and everybody loves a man while Santana and uh and Vic was going, I'm with these guys. And it's you know, Vic never forgot the little guy. And he was never starstruck by the top players. You know, that's where I think with Vic you could learn that you you treat the famous like they're not and those that are not like they are. Uh yeah. I think that so many people sell out it. Vic used to say that that the player doesn't change. The player has some success early on. You see it in junior tennis all the time. The player doesn't change, but all the people around the player, they, they change. It's almost like the coaches are groupies, you know, they're just, um, you know, they're just, you know, edifying. This kid's great. This kid's great. You know, they really, you know, they meet the kid when they're 14, 15 years old and there's just no connection between what happened in the really early age groups. Um, yeah. Go ahead, Brandon. Yeah, coming back to the differentiation of instruction, um, as as far as I know, you've been like you said, uh, you haven't been in the in the tennis trenches in, in the last few years. But when you look at all the the popularization of large tennis academies, I just experienced this with my last uh, my last lesson today. But when you look at the the large group numbers versus private lessons, just in your experience with with Vic, how can you kind of talk about the the drawbacks, you know, and the benefits of, you know, academies versus versus private lessons? Oh, uh, well, that I, I have a I have a tough I set a high bar, you know, because I I saw the how the how it can how those uh Academies, if we want to call them, or, or uh, institutional um, group lessons, how they can work effectively. Mm. You know, the, at the mm. tennis college, man, that that was it. That was the formula right there. You know, the only other thing I've seen uh, come close to that was uh, without without the lanes, but with the same uh, level of effectiveness was in. Uh, Hillsborough County was it Hillsborough Community Community College, Steve? Is that where you had your place that yeah, Kevin went you, to? Brandon and I spent a lot of hours there. Yeah, yeah, and I my, my I sent my son down there, uh, and Steve was tolerant enough to put him up for a week and 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 deal with his dirty towels on the floor. And, but I hope it wasn't anything like Ruben Perchik's room, <laughs> uh, but. Uh, no, that, that was, that was a camp that was run the same way, same effectiveness, just didn't have the, some of the, uh, resources that they, uh, like the, the teaching lanes, you know, in place and, um, the, the, the classroom with the rear projection screens and all the stuff that Vic uh, had at, at the tennis college. Um, and, you know, I saw at the other end. I, uh, well, I probably shouldn't go there, but uh, another high-end, name uh, high-end uh, tennis academy that I sent my son to, where I saw the opposite, where it was just, it was just a, uh, 
a factory, you know, just running kids through, let them hit a lot of balls, uh, not much information uh, put forth, uh, you know, everybody's swinging their own own way, and, uh, you know, that was, a, that was a waste of money. Mm. So that's the personal experience with that. Um, you know, Vic was not, there's a lot, it could be a, we could debate whether Vic, what Vic would have done to the, to the junior culture and, 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 and uh, uh, effort uh, throughout the country had he gone the junior route, but he chose to go the adult tennis to the masses route because he had, he fully believed in the, the power of the sport to, to change people's lives. Mm. You know, he felt he his goal was that to get make more people learn quack quicker so they could play longer. You know, that was his that was his mission statement. You know, have more people learn faster so they could play longer. You know, and, and my dad was a good example of that he played well into his eighties. You know, he was uh, still playing when he had uh, elective heart surgery that he uh, you know didn't have some complications from, but he would he would still be out there. You know, so that's that's the beauty of the sport. It's a it's a lifetime sport, and it can keep people happy and healthy. And um, you know, that's uh, whether it's whether it's group lessons or, or individual lessons. Um, I think that is up to the individual too. It goes back to the you know the, uh, the differentiation of the destruction. Make it it depends on what the uh, student wants. Go, going back to the. Uh, you know, Vic's use of technology and high-speed film. Steve, remember what he said about uh, Reggie Jackson? Yeah. yeah. You know, Vic made the made the effort to take the cameras and go film Reggie Jackson somewhere. I forget what it was, up in New York or somewhere where he was close by. And, cause he wanted, and this was after Reggie did his, uh, what was it, four home runs and two World Series mm-hmm. in a row. Two, it was three and one uh, World Series game, and he started off the second game with a home run and four bad bats. It's just incredible. Mm-hmm. So he, he, he films, he films Reggie Jackson. And then, uh, you know, he says, all right, Reggie, let's take, you know, he gets the film back. Let's look, let's take a look at it. He goes, I don't need to see it. I, I don't, I don't need to see that. He says, tell me or show me, you know, there was, you know, demonstrate. He wanted to see it demonstrated or he wanted this, somebody to tell him what to do. He found no value whatsoever in seeing his swing in high speed slow motion mm. i mean that just that just blew me away you know that if somebody at his level a professional level would would not be interested in seeing that but it's an example of the difference in how people learn mm. you know well i think so. one thing i think we should touch upon vic braden themes but uh jeff lewis who we trained as a player then as a teacher he one time uh was doing a lot of projects for vic at Kodo. um he asked vic uh, why didn't you certify pros? And Vic said, I should have. Mm. He had his course, USTA, United States Tennis Academy. But, you know, Vandermeer with the PTR, um, you think of, uh, you know, just the insurance and the membership, the dues. Uh, that would have been yeah. great. I think Mark Walpole, um, who actually sold the Cota de Casa facility, and was it? Um, his last name is Pack, I think, Bill Pack. Um, Bob Pack, yeah. Bob Pack is still still sitting there. The USTA, they should have bought that because my understanding with the HOA, the Homeowner Association, have 100% of the vote, which you'll never get. 
And that, that facility should just be reopened. To t- and Mark said it, is that we need to train coaches. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's what... That should what that's what should happen with Braden methodology. I met with Scott Schultz. Uh, you know, he started Fair Stages a couple of years after we revised the program at Tyler Junior College, and you know, they're talk- he was talking about certification, and and that's when Lake Nona was more bulldozers and, and tennis balls. And I said, you know, you just need to use it. Vic was. Vic used to say that he was the original Fat Albert. He used to call himself Fat Albert before Bill Cosby had the cartoon fat Albert and they, yeah. and um, you know, they just need to go back to that book um, tennis for the future. And, you know, people now say it's old school and, you know, you used a term earlier that, you know, we get criticized for being a cookie cutter. Well, what if you're trying to make a gingerbread man? Is it okay to use a cookie cutter? <laughs> and I mean, people can just flip it, turn it around. And yeah. I mean, are we going to get kids to sing, sing the alphabet or is that too, too much? Is that too cookie cutter? Are we going to just drop the multiplication tables? Right. Um, but some, Learn to hit the same old boring shot. Yeah, yeah. That, that would be a theme, hit, hit, hit the same old boring shot. Another one would be um, with being an independent thinker and a problem solver. You know, be your own coach. When you miss, why you miss. Figure it out. One that we, yeah. one that we pound into the, the ground, uh, it sounds like mechanical prayer. The dimensions of the court and physical laws dictate stroke production, no coach's opinion, or any unique theory. It's I was like with Vic. It's got a ring to it. Yeah, yeah. I, with, uh, I was with Vic yeah. one time when there was, we were doing a, a camp, and uh, I said, hey, Vic, check this out. Everybody repeat after me. So you got a big kick out of that. Um, and you just think, you know, that's where you don't have too many tennis arguments. If you know the dimensions of the court and you know physical laws, but if you're out there and you don't know the dimensions of the court, I mean, you don't know what makes a ball spin with true topspin. You know, you're an imposter. You're just, you know, you're just not well-informed. And, you know, really then how, and I've been so much in the kid business, how can you look a kid in the eye if you're, you're making it up chapter by chapter, sentence by sentence? Yeah, and what you said uh, reinforces that Vic's um, insistence that it wasn't a big grade method because he would start out early in his lecture saying I can't teach you how to play tennis I can only teach you how to teach yourself and I would love to see the academy well whatever it's called you know teaching the teachers start up again but that's why I said it, it would be great for pros to in whatever capacity that it have in it for them to talk about how Vic the man Vic the resource Vic the information how it affected their teaching, uh, their, I mean, their learning, their, their careers. I mean, the, back in the day when he was referring himself as Fat Albert, I mean, the, a lot of the um, pros maybe only saw the humor. And, the, you know, and even Vic would be self-deprecation, you know, about call, you know, calling himself a little fat funny guy, you know. and uh, But now he's got the... He's a Hall of Famer for crying out loud! Mm-hmm. It's been rec- it's been rec- his influence has been recognized. Uh, it's time for some of these pros to to uh, not admit, just recognize that the, you know that he has had an influence on their lives, whatever whatever way it happened. I mean, that would go a long way to to uh, you know helping create a Vic Braden Tennis Academy or whatever you want to call it. It's a shame you can't use the. I still have my sticker, my patch. 
Steve. You know, the patch that we got graduating from the USTA, a little, yeah. little like a shield looking thing. And yeah, it says USTA on it, but, uh, anyway, yeah, that was, uh, it was a great time. I, I met with John Embry, who runs the USPTA. I don't know him at all, really. Class act. Uh, I know a lot of people speak very highly of him. He was with Wilson, I think, for a long time. And, you know, he knew Vic on a personal level. But then, to, you know, just to, to know the tennis side of it. We say Vic the man and Vic the resource. And I, I told him, I said, you know, there's, I think there's 15,000 members. I've been a member as a tester for a long, long time. And I feel like, you know, Mark Twain, every time you meet someone, you meet your master, that I could learn from each and every one of the USPTA pros. You know, the buzzword, a catchphrase, a drill, and on and on and on. And in the big picture to the little picture. But um, you say, well, I just don't think there's many people in the organization that know 19.1 degrees. <laughs> they don't know you spin the racket through. You know, eight, eight times at 360 degrees, divide 360 by eight. They don't know 45 degrees. And, you, you know, Vic's thing is you, you don't know the rationale. So um, I need to, uh, you know, go forward with this. Uh, we're taking steps in that direction to try to do what we're doing, but do it better. Is Vic had that uh, test, um, the USTA Academy test, something just along those lines, like with 200 questions. And it really should be that everyone should take that test. You know, simple things yeah. like, like how long is the ball on the strings? How, right. how long does it take to register the hit in the brain? And, yeah. you know, so someone's hitting a serve and you tell them, well, you're sneaking a peek. And I think people agree that you don't snap your head like you have whiplash on the serve. But like with what's going on with the forehand, and that's really where the arguments begin and end. Uh, I think Andy, Andy uh, Fitzell, uh, he, he would be uh, one to say, how many times did people criticize you're giving out free content and they would say, Oh, that's not the modern forehand, you know, but the law, the, the laws of physics haven't changed. Um, Vic, the, right. Vic, the man and Vic, the resource. Um, as I said earlier that people would get to know Vic and, uh, then right away it's like, Hey, this is uncle Vic. Uh, someone who you helped out when she, she was with Scotty Perelman first, uh, Jennifer Roberts, she was the assistant coach at Kansas and she spent two years with us at, Tyler Junior College. She yeah, came. she was. Go ahead. She was great, great guy, great kid. I mean, she was really good. So then she spent a year running the place out in uh, uh, Utah. Yep, St. George. St. George and Mark Jakes was there. Dave Nostrand was there. Young Andy Fitzell was there, and um, so then she goes to Illinois, and then. Uh, Tylee, before he went to Illinois, he had done um, a couple weeks in California, a couple weeks in Cape Cod. So, you know, he had met Vic personally, but um, we would say that, you know, he knew Vic Braden backwards and forwards, upside down, Vic Braden the resource, not necessarily Vic Braden the man. Then, he, then you know, they had, um, they had Vic on the Illinois campus. And then in recent times, uh, Vic, Vic went down to Australia. Tylee runs the Australian Open. But... That's what, what, that's what should happen is, you know, obviously now, you know, people can't have the privilege that you and I had to know Vic Braden, the man, but they still can know Vic Braden, the resource. Um, yeah. Uh, and there's still plenty on it, uh, on record, you know, the, the, the library he created, I, I hope tennis channel does something with that. I mean, 
the, the CEO, Ken Solomon, told Melody and I that there will be a Vic Brayton channel, whether it's on YouTube or Tennis Channel. Even he sees the, you know, the movement away from cable, but uh, there should be. There's, there's enough content there to, uh, but, how, you know, whether they'll be able to handle it properly, I don't know. Yeah, Vic's, Vic's vacant lot. You know, he was uh, ABD, all but dissertation. He never, mm-hmm. once they told him that, you know, he, he thought a young kid could be helped more as a psychologist could help a kid more on the playground versus being in the office, you know, the old story, lay on the couch and talk to the shrink. Yeah. And they turned him down and then he, he turned his back on academia and it was, again, all but dissertation. Uh, there's so many things um, uh, from some, some, I don't know if you, go ahead. I don't know if you have that a copy of that LA times uh, interview. Yeah. I know oh, again, go I know. Yeah. About when he gets into the power of sports, which he often did. And it's one of his most poignant uh, parts of his lectures when he talked about his motivation and uh, coming from the power of sports to affect people. And he would ask for a show of hands. I've been in the classroom many a time. And he talks about this in that interview when he asked for a show of hands with people in the classroom, how many have had a, an incident in sports that affected their lives to this day, either positive or negative. And it's a hundred percent. Almost, you know, every hand goes up, whether it was not being picked on a, you know, playground for a team or, you know, scoring a winning touchdown or whatever it was that, power of sports to, to affect and change people's lives um, hope, you know, hopefully positive, but it can also affect it negatively. It's, it's something he was always uh, cognizant of and, and, and worked to help those effects be on the positive side. And that uh, certainly could be said for the, the people that came through the tennis college. Only one that I was aware of that tried to sue him. She was on my court. <laughs> the, the lady that the ball glanced off and I was luckily I was right there and it was you know on a video court so it's not like you know, we didn't have any proof but she said the you know the ball machine was set wrong and it hit her in the eye but it just you know one of those things that came off the bracket but uh, right. actually Vic uh, backing up uh, especially in team sports I think that um, yeah I think more and more kids are getting bad information in tennis teaching but there's lots of kids who have get a bad deal in team sports, especially when they let the parent coach. You know, they're oh, just, they're yeah. gonna, they're going to favor their own child. Um, all the you know, back to the library, and I mean, I can remember giving artist Gilmore tennis lessons VIP. There you go. And um, with uh, I remember telling him that he was too short to hit down on the serve. Or he was too yeah, he was too <laughs> short. He's like seven three, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I remember it's so strange to be teaching someone who's seven foot three. I go, "You're too short. You can't hit down on the serve." And he said, "No, no one has ever told me I'm too short." But one thing is yeah. in that library, Vic was a really good basketball player, and yet every once in a blue moon, you'd get him, see him in the gym, and he could just—he was—he was just good. I, he could drink I had the privilege. Go ahead. Yeah, I had the privilege of playing with him one night because we had Tuesday night basketball in that gym, and one night he shows up and he's ready to play and. Man, you had to be ready for the no look pass. But yeah, he was fast, and he—that uh, was his first love. I think it was his first coaching. No, for he sure. He coached back. He coached basketball before he coached tennis. 
And Vic used to say, hey, if you, if you like basketball and you just want to shoot in the driveway, just go shoot in the driveway. No one says you have to play. But right. um, with, um, yeah, but Artis Gilmore, um, he's in the gym at Cotto and he's stuffing a basketball. And then you see Braden stuffing a basketball. So Gilmore stuffs one, Braden stuffs one. And it's like, wow, that's pretty good, Vic. And the camera fades away and Vic's on a trampoline. <laughs> yeah. No, there's a lot of fun things. It's too bad that uh, I think the library, you and I have talked over and over again, getting in the right hands. But I think it also should be a, a working archive, you know, that uh, and I think that's one thing. Yeah. We, what we're trying to do with the Great Base, you know, we feel that we should call it, should have called it solid fundamentals. Because, I mean, it's amazing that, you know, I'm, I'm thinking who could argue with young people, you know, whether it's a beginning adult or beginning kid starting with a Great Base. I think everyone would agree right. that no matter what um, you're pursuing, that you have to start with a great base. Vic, you know, coming back to being sued, Vic used to say that there was a guy who he thought was going to sue the tennis college because he said that wasn't him on the film. And Vic, <laughs> and the, and the, and Vic always had the punchline. He goes, and he was a group, and he was in a group with all women. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was that reminds me of the, uh, his story of how, what when he knew that video was the, the tool that he needed when he first used video. And he had the, uh, he filmed a group, you know, men and women, and he gets them into the video room at tennis college, you know, with, and this is, this is before cassettes guys. This is, it was open reel video. You know what an open reel tape player is, right? It's on the, mm-hmm. on, on the reels. Yeah, this this was before uh, video VHS video cassettes. This was open reel video that we used in '79. Uh, so, Vic, the first time he used it, and he and he's uh, he brings it up on the film, and he's and he's uh, showing the, the, this lady her her forehand or whatever forehand and backhand, and I mean, he said she was just wrapped. You know, she's eyes are locked on the screen, and you know, she's just totally captivated by that and you know he's going over the what what she should be doing but taking racket down lower and maybe bending her knee some more and and then he t- turns and says that he had any questions and she goes my god i didn't know my eyes were that big you know that, that's you know that's what ha- was what was that's what was captivating her you know she was just watching you know what she was watching but uh eventually you know we he found the uh the real value in the video as a, as a learning tool. But if, you know, that showed him the, the ability of to grab people's attention at least. Mm. Yeah. The lens, what do they say? The lens puts on 10 pounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Go ahead, Brandon. Yeah, no, I mean, my, my two big takeaways from all this, uh, I think education, not ego and Vic uh, being so ahead of his time. I mean, we, we have this, this performance center in, in South Florida. And, and now you're just talking about the pneumatic exercise equipment. Um, we've got a piece of equipment that sounds very similar. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to disclose how much we paid for it, but I mean, considering they were talking about that in the seventies and the eighties, and now that's considered, you know, yeah. state of the art, cutting edge. It's, it's considered yeah. cutting edge. And then also too the, yeah. the light, the basin red light uh, mechanism you were talking about, that's now being those kind of light displays working on athletes reaction time. Yeah, I see an ad, a sponsored ad on social media for, for those things every single day. And you'd, you'd kind of shudder to think of the cost of one of those pieces of equipment, but 
<laughs> I think that stuff's all really that. I think those two takeaways, you know, the education, not ego, um, just everything you said from actually inviting people to challenge him on his, on his uh, methodologies and his information, um, you know, being so comprehensive in his approach, you know, being able to, to not have such a, a massive ego to then invite NASA and Caltech to be part of his tennis, uh, tennis academy. Um, and then just the combination of background in psychology and biomechanics, you know, the ability to factor in, you know, someone's anxiety, uh, but then also have the background in human physiology and technique to, to, to work that as well. Um, just, you know, fascinating to listen to you talk about all those things, but uh, just also just a great reminder of that we all should go back and revisit revisit his, uh, his content. Starting with go for a winner. Mm. I've seen, I've, I've, I probably lost count of how many times I've watched that because it was shown every, uh, Saturday and every Tuesday, I believe it was. Yeah. The, uh, the chalk, talk, the chalk talk, the one that Steve talked about with the, uh, the doubles, he called it mixed doubles, but Right. All the strategies are applicable applicable to whatever doubles. 100%. You know, he goes, it's a fantastic adventure. But you can see, you could run to someone like Tommy Fye, like yourself. You know, Vic, you know, he loved Tommy Fye. And you, you could see Fye to this day and go, who's in trouble? Two. <laughs> yeah, two. Exactly. Who's in trouble? Yeah. Two. And, it's, uh, like, it's like, yeah, knowing the, knowing the lines of a favorite movie. Yeah. Meaning, you know, player number two. Uh, you know, Brandon's point about Vic being ahead of his time, Warren Pretorius came to help us with a workshop more than one time, but one time he was there and we were filming, but we were, this is back when he had to change, whether it's VHS or the DVD, whatever, and or the battery. Um, so we didn't get Warren on film saying this, but at one time Warren, you know, he said so much to do with Dartfish and now he runs a company, Tennis Analytics, intellectual, bright guy. And he certainly would have a high, high appreciation for Braden. So Warren is what he said about Darfish. And Darfish, Vic was, um, he was uh, helping Warren with advertising. And there was a commercial or there was a, an ad that said, hi, I'm Vic, I Darfish. And, but what Warren said in this workshop, and we didn't get it on film, he said, basically what Darfish is doing is what Vic Braden was doing 30 years ago. Wow. And it's true. It's true. Um, yeah. I think with Galway, um, we talked about that book just recently. Brandon brought it up. And, um, you know, he had a way of really relaxing people. So did Vic with Vic with his humor. Um, you know, Galloway just had a way to get people to be relaxed and slow down and hit the ball, quote unquote, smoothly. But Vic used to just say, you know, shut up and show me how to hit it. <laughs> you know, like, like, yeah. you know, like, how do you hang on to it? And with, uh, I went to the tennis uh, academy, then I went back and there was a guy who had not changed his grip on the forehand side and he had a roll, racket face was open because of the continental grip. And Vic went out, the guy wanted another lesson. So he, he was just very extroverted guy and, you know, anybody wanted to help and he just jumped out on the court. And so, you know, at that time we, we were like the only two repeaters. So we knew each other from the previous course. Cause I went back, went to it back to back six months apart when April and went back in December so Vic isn't talking to buy a guy about changing his grip. And he's just telling him to push the palm down. 
And uh, so I remember um, someone asked, well, why aren't you changing the grip? And Vic goes, I'm not a toad. He was here before. <laughs> he didn't change the grip the last time. <laughs> so if, if, he goes, if he's back. You know, actually, um, I remember with Jack Grapple having breakfast with Jack Grapple and Tim Gullickson. And, and I was there as the hitter with Gully. And, and Jack wasn't. And Jack said, well, Vic probably told you to change the grip. Or Jack, uh, Vic told you to change the grip. And, and I said, no, he didn't. I mean, you don't have to tell someone to change their grip. I mean, if in our world, we get kids that are 13, 14 years old, they want to play college tennis and, you know, really their, their game, they, they need to just go back to the drawing board. You know, you can't work within their game. But if someone comes to you like Tim Gully and, you know, he's 17 in the world, um, you can say, you know, like that Lendl versus McEnroe, you know, and Vic just had it, you know, he had such an eye for it um, because, you know, he was someone who was actually he he got out there and, and fed balls. He actually taught tennis. A lot of people that are professing tennis now, they really haven't taught tennis. They haven't taught beginners. They haven't right. done the hard yard. So McEnroe and Leno both had the same grip on the backhand side, but McEnroe rolled it with a racket face open, had to recruit the, recruit the muscles to turn it. That's one of the reasons that he wanted to get to the net as soon as possible. Where Lendl, he just he just turned the wrist down. But they, yeah. um, but he, Lendl's the one who had the racket face closed and it then went up. Uh, I had a large office on this one college campus and we had, remember we had 12 photos uh, right up by the, you know, the top of the wall and where the ceiling meets. And each one is you could just, you go through and it, it was, uh, for example, uh, you know, Chrissy Everett on the, the backhand where the racket face is closed. Now, granted, people say, oh, she hit side spins, she could hit slice, she did all these things with her backhand. That's because she had the framework to do that. But, you know, how does somebody win 125 matches in a row on clay? I mean, she could right. she could hit it. Right. Um, with, uh, you know, that's where Vic, uh, you know, where Chrissy on her toss on her serve and how her, her elbow came down. And, you know, he wasn't uh, saying that, okay, She's a toad. He's going to notice this girl's won, you know, 15, 16, 17. I think it ended up being 18 grand slams, but that she could have even been better. You know, and, and the thing is, is that, uh, and, you know, and he was the one with getting arrow where they had the equipment to measure and say, well, if you did this and you did that, you know, how much faster the ball would go with, uh, you remember uh, Hartman? What was Hartman's first name? He was on Good Morning David, America, David, David Hartman. David Hartman, yeah. So that was a VIP lesson I was assigned to, and he's there with his wife and two little kids, and, and he played a high-level pro baseball. And, you know, he just told me, I really like, yeah. I really like golf. I'm here because my wife likes tennis. <laughs> so Vic was so big. Uh, I said, Vic, uh, the guy loves golf. He goes, all right, we'll film him. <laughs> Next thing you know is um, they're on the Good Morning America show like a week later. I remember telling my mother this. Was, hey, yeah, mom, this is how close I am to the big time. Because she, <laughs> she used to watch that show in the morning. And I go, yeah, Uncle Vic. I mean, next thing you know, he films Hartman. And then he's doing a, a, a and Gideon Arrow's part of it. Gerald Ford was president. So they have Nicholas, Gerald Ford, and David Hartman hitting golf balls. And, um, and all that, it's just science. It's just that all that just stands the test of time. I mean, you know, Newton and Galileo, it's a great line. They were here before us. Let's go with yeah. a couple, a couple well, more here. McLaughlin's getting past your bedtime, I think. Yeah, no, no. I, like I said, I could go on forever because golf, man, the uh, the golf study, this was years later, 
went well into the Kodo Research Center when they brought in the uh, Iron Byron. Were you there for that? No, I don't think so. Go ahead. It was a this uh, machine uh, that the golf USGA, or the Golf Association, owns that um, is modeled after the uh, swing of Byron Nelson. They call it Iron Iron Byron. It looks like a moon lander. It's a it's an amazing example of what it takes to uh, replicate a human uh, motion. This thing you ha- we had to bring in a, uh, a industrial compressor. We had to screw it down into the asphalt at, at the uh, on the court at the uh, research center, and then uh, then they had to spend a couple of days setting it up. But it would it would it was designed to basically test golf clubs because it could it could crank a, a swing harder than a human could, and so it, it would you know stress the golf clubs to the breaking point, and and they would know you know how for the design of the strength and the uh, of the clubs. But for this uh, project, they were going to test golf balls. So they had to set it up with a regular what, one or two clubs or whatever. Um, so the clubs would be the same, but then they would change out the balls. And once they got it set up, uh, all the golfers, there were a number of coaches that were golfers, but they were drooling because they, they could set this thing up to, to hit a 300-yard drive and place it in about a three-foot circle consistently, you know. So once they knew that they had, you know, had it set up, then they could change balls and and then determine what the difference was. But they wanted to shoot at ultra-high speed. Now, this is the kind of thing these days can be done, like, you know, uh, digitally. But back then, it had to be mechanically. Uh, Most of the high-speed film that you guys have seen with... uh, Vic slow-mo work is four to four hundred to five hundred frames per second. That was that was uh, efficient for the for the to see the racket clearly at impact, and it also was efficient for film use because the faster you shoot, the faster you go through film. Uh, but this shoot was going to be at eleven thousand frames per second. This is this is physical film now. Uh, they were going to they had this, they brought in a a specialist. It was like the the pro from Dover, you know, this, this guy, it was called a, a high cam. They, they, they still make them, I think. Um, but they're digital now, but, uh, only a few people in the country knew how to operate this thing, which was basically two motors and a lens. You know, the, the, the motors would crank this, the film through at that speed. And then the lens would record it. So, you know, the faster you, if you know, film, the faster you go, the more light you need. Uh, and this was in broad daylight. It was bright uh, sun, but it wasn't bright enough. So they had to bring in, uh, first we tried uh, reflectors, and that wasn't bright enough. This is this is shining on a golf ball now. And then they brought in hot lights. They had to put so much light there that they, if they left the ball on the tee too long, it would start to melt. So they had it was really this amazing coordination, this dance, where they had to uh, get the machine pumped up with the compressor you know it would it, so it would crank the arm back with the club ready to swing and then they would have to start the cameras because the film does not get to 11,000 frames right to the start and only the last uh, couple hundred feet are are traveling at that speed so the film would just go you know just wind through this through the uh, aperture and uh, and then 
they would start to, so it'd be lights, camera, action, you know, the same kind of thing. The camera had to, but the camera was just this, these uh, motors firing. And then the last thing would be to put the ball on the tee. So that, and then the, somebody pulled the trigger for the, for the uh, Iron Byron to swing. It took most of a day to get that uh, coordination down. But once they got it down, they were able to, you know, to do it. And then when we got the film back, out of the 400 feet of film, it, and it goes so fast that the last couple of feet of the film, it shreds the sprockets. The sprockets are just, uh, the film was pulled through the sprockets so fast that, you know, it shreds. So, and and uh, to make, make it even more uh, technical, uh, 11,000 frames per second, that's at full frame, 16 millimeter frame. So what they did is they shot half frame, which doubled the rate of, of film so that actually what it came out to be was 22,000 frames per second. Uh, and out of that 22,000, out of that 400 foot uh, reel of film, it was only the last couple uh, frames, last few frames, actually six, only six frames had the ball in contact with the, the club. Um, and it was cool watching it, cranking it through the viewer and trying to waiting for the and you know the ball's just sitting there, and it wasn't until the very end. And then you see the the club head come in, you know, click, 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 the frame by frame, and then it compresses the ball, the golf ball. You've probably seen it by now. Uh, compresses almost in half before it leaves the club. But uh, yeah, that was it. And I spent a lot of time. Uh, remember, this was back in when uh, computers personal computers were just getting started so they were still using mainframes and the, the computer that they used to, to transfer to digitize a human movement or in this case a golf ball movement uh, was uh, room size it was like the size of a walk-in closet or bigger and then they projected it onto a screen now for motion movement they, they mark the person's body and uh, and such and but um, back then they had to Digitally on a, on a on a on a touch screen with a with a pen, they had to mark the, the joint of a person if they were doing a person, or in this case, a golf ball. We tracked the flight of the golf ball for the full three hundred yards, uh, and that was uh, that was a crazy day or two I or re- a week actually. I remember having Vic uh, come to uh, this place or that place, bringing him in and. Uh, to, you know, get as many people in the room, say, on an opening night, bring them for Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then Friday have it be open to just, not just tennis enthusiasts, but sport enthusiasts. But if, if all you would have to do is say, Vic, I got golfers in the room. And he's like, okay. Yeah. And he can talk about golf. I mean, basketball. You know, and the one thing I think that people should learn from Vic is every time you talk to people, there's definitely someone in the audience that knows more about it than you do. There's a physicist, there's an engineer, there's a psychologist. Um, right. I think that would help everybody as a speaker. One thing for our audience, uh, Mike spent, you know, more than a decade at Kodo day in and day out. Now, I know you, you went to Germany and you worked as a consultant in new sites and, you know, you were at the, the, the machine or the project with the lanes. But for me, I, I was on the staff at Kodo de Casa. I was just there um, just shy of two years. And then... Um, I was going to go work for Vic in Europe. I was going to be in Reitenwinkel in the uh, in the yeah. in the Alps, Germany, in the summertime, and then 
Marbella, Spain in the wintertime. Of course, in Marbella, Spain in the wintertime, everybody's pretty much, all the tourists are speaking German. But I had this clause, <laughs> if I went to Tyler Junior College, um, if that job opened up and they would allow me to go to revise the curriculum, that I was out of the agreement to go to Europe. So I remember being at the U.S. Open with Vic, and I said, I, I will know within a week which, which way I'm going. And But anyway, that was like 84... Uh, that that took place in eighty one, but by eighty four, maybe eighty five, every every Vic Braden tennis head coach from that point forth, that his sites were, were trained. I trained them, except for Luke Wickham, who actually is great friends with Vic as well, and he's very similar brain type as Vic. Um, but then Luke did go through our training. But one story I'd like to share: one of our uh, husband wife that we trained, and we trained many husband wives. Uh, and they've done great things for other people throughout their lives. But they were a head coach combined in, in Europe for Vic. And they laughed and they wrote Vic um, about all the problems. And I remember Vic telling me, and he wasn't, you know, I didn't, it was like, well, it kind of hit you like, okay, Vic's giving me some, some hard juice here, some, some strong stuff. Is I don't want people, yeah. I don't want people to tell me what, problems are. I want people to tell me what the solutions are. And I just think that's the way Vic's brain operated is how can we, yeah. how, how can we do this better? Uh, to touch upon this. I mean, um, Hollywood, you must've met a lot more uh, stars from Hollywood. Who comes to your mind? Just two or three people that you remember teaching from Hollywood. Oh, uh, well, one at the top of this was my childhood idol. I was a big fan of the TV show, the, the scuba diving TV show, Sea Hunt. You guys old enough to remember Sea Hunt? Lloyd Bridges, right? L- Lloyd Bridges, yeah. Da, 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 da. I, yeah the, 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 theme, the theme song is still in my head. I mean, that's how much I love that show. And I had the, the joy of, of working with him, you know, one-on-one on the, on the court. He was in a, in a group, but also uh, he asked for some, you know, individual work. And, and what a great guy. He was just, you know. I don't, the I, nicest I, guy. Yeah, I didn't work with him, but um, he was on Seinfeld. He later in his yeah, life, he was yeah. on Seinfeld. He, Mendelbaum, Mendelbaum. Yeah, right. He's uh, he he was a fitness freak. Yeah, that was that was a funny. Yeah, you know, he is he was in the water. He was swimming. Uh, yeah. How about another one? I remember, uh, just you, you remember Chevy Chase, right? Yeah, I, I remember. I could tell yeah. Chevy Chase stories all day long. Um, yeah, he was, the funniest one was he had a he was in it. Yeah, he just went was in a group. I mean, when I went around with the, the group of six, and one of the guys in the group was just a real jerk. Whether he was trying to overcompensating because Chevy was in his group or what, but the guy was was uh, was a jerk. This is plain and simple. And so when one one time when we left the video uh, court. To go to to the lanes, uh, all the all the courts had locks for after hours, just padlocks, you know. And as he was he was late getting out of the court, and Ch- Ch- was the last one to leave, so he shut the gate and locked them in, put the padlock on, snapped it shut. Yeah, then he went up so on the, up on the deck, which was like three courts away, and put his took his shoes off, put his feet up on the railing, and held up his orange juice and uh, let the guy know that he was very comfortable sitting up on the deck. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, Jeff, he was there when uh, Ruben Perchek was there. So I remember telling Vic, I said, yeah, I'm working with this kid. And 
He just got back from junior Wimbledon. He lost to Matt Anger. Matt Anger coaches uh, University of Washington has for a long time. He was, you know, he dated Tracy Austin way back when. But yeah, he's a top 50 player. But he was like the yeah. number one American. And and so I remember Vic used to walk his dogs and uh, he, he would come by to help us like for, it, I mean, two minutes turned into two hours. But so I was at yeah. the National Teachers Conference and uh, – so, I mean, there's hundreds of people in the room, and it was really fun. He was showing Chevy's strokes and Ruben's strokes. So uh, it's Chevy Chase and myself up on this big screen, and Vic goes, and uh, Chevy's the one with the hat on. Everybody just started laughing. <laughs> with, uh, I remember Vic used to do this. He goes, Steve, if you'd come up to the net, hold the racket up, extend your arm, I'd hold the arm, my arm and racket way up, and he'd hit the ball over my racket. Right. right. And then uh, he would say, it only took us three months to train Steve to do that. <laughs> yes, he, he, yeah. he had some amazing lines. Um, with um, he did. no, I remember, um, you know, the the TV show Lassie, the 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 the, the mother and the father. Uh-huh. She she went through the program. Uh, who else? Lockhart. Yeah, Lockhart. Yeah. Yeah, June Lockhart. June Lockhart. Uh, yeah, I'm teaching yeah. Lassie's mom. <laughs> yeah, George. George Papard, uh, you know the A team guy. Um, he went through with he went through with his son, Christian. Who I Christian was a real sweet, a real nice kid. Um, I was uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire. Uh, Maurice White. Yeah, he, I was a big Earth, Wind, and Fire fan, and I think Barry Gordy too, the the uh, Motown guy. He he went through. Um, geez. Yeah, there's you know from movies to sitcoms to it was. Uh... Yeah, I mean, Vic himself, yeah. I remember, I, I've tried to find it on uh, YouTube, but I remember he was on Hollywood Squares. You know, he was that good, you know, with Paul Lynn and the others, or he'd, uh, you know, he'd just come up with that one-liner, one just like yeah. flat out. Chevy Chase, uh, come back to Chevy, he said, we're down in the stadium, the 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 research court, and I just yelled out, you know, because you had to walk down the stairs. They were rubberized, like the, made out of the same material as a track, so a tartan surface. And so I yelled out, hey, Chevy, why don't you, why don't you uh, fall down the stairs like he did on Saturday Night Live? Oh, gee. So he walks down the stairs, and he turns around, walks back up. And uh, so anyway, Vic goes, can you do that again so we could film it? But he rolled, <laughs> he, he, he didn't do it a second time, so it, it was, Vic didn't get it on film, but he rolled, and then he, then he told us his technique is that he didn't roll straight down. He would roll to the side, to the side to break his momentum and slow down. But uh, and he, he was a big guy, too. Um, he was. Yeah, he was like 6'4". Six, six, yeah. Yeah. No, I repeated myself from the podcast we had on Vic, but Evelyn Ashford, she was the number one sprinter in the world. So, I mean, you know, I've just been around through Vic, uh, world-class athletes. I think, you know, my, my older brother, I remember being around the pro hockey players, but uh, – the hockey players back in the day when he was assistant coach for the Rangers, they would go, they'd have a skate from 11 to one. They'd go to a, like a pizza pub restaurant. They'd have lunch and dinner there. I mean, they would be there from like <laughs> two in the afternoon to past midnight. Uh, so they, they weren't stronger, but they were tougher. But Evelyn Ashford, so she's, they have her run 40 yards. Yeah. And, and then they go, can you do that again? And she didn't know she had to do it again. And she said, yeah, I can do it again. So, I mean, yeah. like 45 minutes go by and she's doing all these routines and stretching and Vic goes, I would have just had another donut. And <laughs> Fat yeah. Albert, just so funny. He, Were you there when the, uh, 
when the uh, volleyball yeah. USA volleyball team trained. Yeah, yeah, that was that was was Slazinger, right from Israel. Yeah, yeah. What was his first name? Ari. Ari Slazinger. Yeah, they um yeah. they took a girl from Kodo. It was it was a walk on, and that but that yeah. was, that was nineteen eighty, and the boycott the the Olympics were boycotted. Uh, oh right, right, right. No, I'm thinking of '84 when they it was in LA. Okay, I wasn't around. I wasn't in Kodo on a regular basis at yeah. that time. Yeah, but yeah, it was. I think. I mean, my idea of volleyball until I saw those women play was like like a little picnic sport, kind of like a people in America think of badminton. Yeah, with um, I, I, Ari was the first coach at that at, at any level I've ever, ever heard say it that stomach muscles are are the most important for an athlete. I mean, that's the way he put it, you know, but, but nowadays they call it the core, but you know, back then he was, you know, he had those girls in shape. With, uh, one of the best experiences I had with Vic was I had already been, and I created this slideshow do's and don'ts. I was teaching PE teachers at Texas A&M and that opportunity opened up because I had coached some players that were on the team and, and, uh, what, what the Aggie spirit. So I met A&M. And this goes back in the 80s. I, I've been there, you know, with Steve Denton and different experiences. He's the most recent coach. He's been there for 10 plus years, I would say. But So I had this young kid. He ended up playing, ironically, at Texas, Clayton Stanley. And he's, we, you know, it's so, it's so easy if you're living in Texas. You got to borrow A&M clothes and you got to borrow Texas clothes. And we had him looking so goofy wearing longhorn clothes, wearing that like a big cowboy hat and shoes on the wrong foot that were too big and a sock on one foot, no sock on the other foot. And just in, just like in Vic's book, you know, where you're leaning back and you're just in this awkward position trying to hit a backhand. Then we had him wear A&M clothes. So this program I did for several years, we would teach the PE teachers and there'd be, I mean, it was a hall. I mean, there had to be 300 people in the room. They're all PE majors. Universities like that, like a small city. So we took Vic, and how we ended up taking Vic was that he came to Tyler, Texas, every other year, and we got to the point where the local teaching pros were not supporting Vic Braden coming. You know, they either loved us or hated us, and anybody associated with us. So I said, okay, we're not going to get that many locals to come. What we'll do is have Vic come here on Thursday all day, Friday morning, and we'll take him to A and M. And I remember. to go off on a tangent, a club president calling me up and going, um, you know, we'd like to have our pros uh, come and listen to Vic. I said, they're more than welcome. I said, but, you know, I've invited them now three, four times, and they, they don't show. So anyway, back to the, the, the Texas A&M story, I said, Vic, I got this slideshow. I think you're going to have some fun with it. And, you know, I had fun with it. The, the, the Aggies were just, they were, it was like a football game that they had won with a blowout. Because, you know, they get up and they stamp their foot and they go in a circle. And, and when an Aggie, when they coach, when they score a touchdown, the Aggie gets to kiss his girlfriend. So anyway, they're going, I mean, it's like a football game and they're screaming. So that's when I did it. Just imagine when, so Vic did that. I mean, that was like, that guy was such an entertainer. Yeah, he went yeah. in the crowd. He just knew how to pause, wait for the line. It was great. Yeah, that was a, uh, his genius, you know, he was an entertainer, but he was also an educator, you know, and he, and going back to what something Brandon said a while back is that, um, you know, he never underestimated the intelligence of his audience. You know, he knew that it was a broad spectrum of society 
and you know he, he never took him for granted. He never talked down to him. Uh, you know, when, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you do this in your lectures, Steve, but you know when the information got too heavy, when it was full of, of angles and degrees and, and the you know the physics, he would say, "All right, I know some of you." saying, look, Vic, I just came here to learn how to pick the ball up, you know, by tapping the ball with your foot or, you know, he would, he, he knew when to, when to go easy or when to insert the humor. And, and again, it was, that was a psychologist in him, bring, bring people back around to paying attention and getting that good information. So, um, yeah, if anybody still, I always think one of my brothers was, uh, who passed away is really, really funny and quick witted and think he could have been a professional comedian if he learned to make fun of himself. I think that's what most comedians do first. I mean, Rodney Dangerfield's got to be the best at that. But yeah. um, but Vic would always use the pronoun we. This is what we toads do. And right. uh, even I love Bud Collins, but Bud Collins used to uh, refer to the American public as fellow hackers. And a lot of people, they didn't want to be called a hacker. But uh but yeah, Vic wouldn't say, this is what you do on the serve. You do this wrong. You do this wrong. It's like, this is what we have a tendency to do. Mm-hmm. With, uh, But yeah, we need to have you on time and time again. To, uh, you know, there's so many things that I think people would love to hear about Vic Braden. Let's go with a couple yeah, of well, questions and we'll wrap it up here. If anybody's still listening, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking about us toads, uh, just from your experience working with Vic and a lot of tennis players, uh, I would say, you know, a lot of recreational tennis players as well coming in to the tennis college. Did you guys notice any one particular flaw technically that was maybe above and beyond more prevalent than, than others? The most common uh, flaw or, or difficulty for, yeah. Yeah. Just for for, people, just for first, you know, first thing that comes to mind. Yeah. What, what you, what you uh, recognize. To me, it's, it's getting the racket lower than the ball. Mm. You know, uh, the lifting uh, aspect, because people, you know, the, the, the see-through net, you know, fools the eyes. Uh, getting the, the racket on the same level as the object to be struck, that's common sense, you know, but you have to fight common sense, get the racket lower than the ball to be able to lift it. You know, that's why, you know, Vic would start the lectures and we all start our lectures by talking about tennis as a lifting game. Mm. That's, there's so many other difficulties, but that, that may be one of the most difficult because that, that leads into, uh, you know, once they start lifting it, then it, you know, it goes too high. Then you'd start to talk about how the racket face, you know, the ball goes where you aim it. You know, the racket face is pointed wrong. It's not the upward swing. So, uh, what do you think, Steve? It's, no, for what, years and years, your... yeah, Vic would say, number one flaw is people don't get the racket below the ball. You know, towards the end of his life, he did so much work uh, studying the brain. As he said, the number one tennis tip would let the other person think they're going to lose. Get not that, that phrase, get inside their head, because you talk about the motor programming. Once your opponent start to th- starts to think they're going to lose, they lose coordination because they're functioning in a different part of the brain. <laughs> but I think also, too. Yeah, that, that, that's, where, that he would, that's where he would go off into the dinkers, right? Because here, here, here's one more opportunity for you to lose. <laughs> yeah, he, you know the, and he, yeah. he'd love uh, Kramer. You know, let, let them take gas just one more time. Let them miss. House, right. house full of trophies. Um, right. also, also, to palm up, um, you know, we have a On list, the yeah, we have yeah. a list of uh, well, easily like 25 you know, ideas where, where, you know, someone's 
serving, Vic used to go out and get everybody laughing, and go, they go through, all these people go through all these idiosyncrasies, gyrations, and they just patty cake the ball in. But ways to change someone from palm up to palm down. Vic used to say, if you can change someone from palm up to palm down, you can teach tennis. Now, the, the one thing, though, is a lot of people don't even recognize palm up. I was with a uh, brother, sister, the brother, uh, Victor Lillov. He just got to the junior Wimbledon final, and his sister is a scholar, and we're at an academy. And uh, her name is Radina. I said, go watch those three lessons over there. Don't say anything. And she came back, goes, all three players have palm up. But the, the, yeah. but the coach doesn't know. Mm. I mean, it's it, right. Vicky used to say this as well. If you know your short ball range, you know tennis. So I would hear things right. like that, and then uh, that's where I would take the club and hit people over the head. Did you hear him say that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He said, if you know the short ball range, then you could call yourself a coach. And if you don't know it, um, the uh, but that, that's where there's just so many things that are golden nuggets you know, it's a treasure chest and our game would be played better. I mean, I think instead of all this infighting and people out handing out business cards, merchant of flesh, you know, it's just like, okay, everybody's trying to fight over the same 20 kids who can play instead of bringing new kids into the game and, right. um, you know, be able to teach. And I think that's another thing too, is that we've already touched upon it, but Vic, um, you know, he didn't have to be, you know, yeah, certainly, you know, he was excited to have someone like Tim Gullickson and there's so many other people that uh, would come in and ask for advice, but he was happy to help the ordinary Joe, you know, um, just down to earth and level-headed and good-natured. But um, yeah. the, um, yeah, but Mackie D, S-I-B, <laughs> smart Irish. Devo, D- smart D-I-B, Irish. yeah. Smart Irish boy. That's what we, the dumb Irish boy. This, is, this has been great. I mean, I, I, we've done this a couple of times where we just go on a, a long, uh, a couple of times. Yeah. Oh, my word. Yeah. Talking about Vic. I mean, we could do it. Yeah. But anyway, anytime guys, you know, yeah, I enjoyed it. No, all the best to Jackie, you and the family. Um, Anything else, Flanagan, Flanagan, Flanagan? Oh, I really appreciate it. Just your perspective, and, and thanks for taking the time. I, I know that everyone listening will really enjoy it. And like Steve said, the number one pillar is, is definitely Vic. And uh, really appreciate it. Really enjoyed it myself personally. And thanks again. Yeah, if you're going to build a house, you know, you have to have a foundation. And, you know, you know I think also to Vic's and his uh, – curiosity i know he used to he stayed with brain typing he just loved brain typing but you know he would always you know be on the cutting edge is what's new how can we how can we do things better but it really comes back to just that you have to circle back and be brilliant with basics yep yep all right well it's a privilege for me guys i enjoyed it and uh anytime all right mackie d adios amigos thanks thanks mike you guys yeah, take care. Yeah, all right, we'll do it again. Bye-bye. All right, Flanagan, let's wrap this thing up here. Sure. Uh, just, I think Vic Braden, the, Vic Braden, the researcher, Vic Braden, the teacher, Vic Braden, the sports psychologist, the biomechanist, really a renaissance man, the athlete. Um, even the line you said about problems versus solutions. Just, I think, the you know, having our business here in South Florida, there's so much tennis being played here and uh, and thinking about the comprehensive approach. You know, we, we have this hitting 
quote unquote hitting lane. We have mental performance coach and nutrition, physical therapy, the whole, you know, I think in our little way, hopefully we're kind of carrying on that comprehensive approach as well. Um, but he's, he just did it before anyone even thought to do it. And that's just an incredible, incredible thing. But, uh, I think one more takeaway is I didn't know your dad looked like Bob Hope. Yeah, definitely. Some of these kids with palm up serves, they got two kinds of hopes. Bob Hope and No Hope. Bob Hope and No Hope. With uh, Bob Hope was born in England, and he left when he found out he couldn't be king. <laughs> With uh, he's always looking for a war. Bob Hope, um, the uh, yeah, blast from the past. So I've known McLaughlin forty three years. Forty three years, he didn't know my father looked like Bob Hope. With uh, no Mike, I would say this. Uh, you know, he said, "Well, he hasn't really been in tennis." For the last 20 years, uh, it's so much to do with bringing up his third daughter with his wife, Jackie. And, and, um, but once you know it, you know it. Just rattles it off. It's amazing. Yeah, no. So that's where um, it's, you know, again, it's, it's not hero worship. I know Andy Fitzell says it so well. Um, just let me see your kids hit the ball. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you know, it is unfortunate where people will embellish that they know, you know, they knew Vic Braden or they knew the Vic Braden method. And, and um, I mean, all you have to do is listen to someone for a minute or two and, and then, you know, mm-hmm. so, and again, I can't say it over, say it enough over and over again, just the facts, Jack, you know, make it make sense. You know, we need, we need truth in tennis teaching and it is an art. It is a science but we've gone way too far away from the science. Mm. You know, it's that old line that uh, you said you liked where I go, well, if that's how a snake goes down a hole, I say, okay, I'll believe you. But I mean, you know, I mean, there's kids hitting forehands that have 99 to 92 different parts that they don't need to have. Mm. But um, no, Mike, uh, is such a, he's a great guy and he's certainly a great guy to represent Vic. And oh uh, yeah, he's... Um, someone who can we could definitely talk to again i think he said that well about you know we brought up the legacy professional players recreational players i think uh, he said that really well you know he's in the hall of fame and that's uh that's great testament to to what he did for the sport of tennis i know that there's probably not a lot of people that think about their legacy but uh but those are that are think, thinking that their best legacy left behind is what ranking that their players had in in high school or or college or the pros, if that's their, that's their definition of a great legacy, I think they should really reevaluate their I one time was talking position. to a, a dean, I worked for Richard Minner, and he said, um, you're rocking the boat. This is in Tyler, Texas, where there's 88 Baptist church, churches. So he said, you're rocking the boat. I said, I'm not rocking the boat. I can't rock the boat. The boat's underwater. And I do think that tennis needs a knee-jerk reaction, and people don't need to be politically correct. Tennis is in trouble. We do need to do a much better job. Team together, everyone accomplishes more. Let's get on the same page. Let's at least get the Vic Braden book. So I, there is the Hall of Fame, and I think it's great that Vic is in the Hall of Fame. I think it's unfortunate that uh, he wasn't inducted, just like Dennis Vandermeer, during his lifetime. Mm. But there's also the Hall of Shame, and I mean, all you have to do is go and watch, and you see these kids that are working hard, and you know the parents. I mean, it's getting totally out of whack on how expensive it is. And uh, we need to come together. I mean, we'll sign off here, but I told a parent today, I said, I think parents should boycott. How much did you pay to play in this tournament? And, um, you know, we don't run the type of academy where 
Well, you go to the academy, but then you have to take a lesson that costs, you know, from the head coach that costs several hundred dollars per mm-hmm. hour. And, um, but yeah, Hall of Fame and Hall of Shame. Um, it, um, it is a shame that we're back to square one because Vic was a myth buster. And the, the myths that he broke, I mean, we have a podcast on just myths alone that uh, they're out there bigger than ever. But anyway, listeners, thanks for hanging in there. If you're on an inter- international flight, this is a podcast to listen to. <laughs> with, thanks. Uh, thanks, guys. And Joe Rogan, that was not true. He, he, he's not working with us. But we, we aspire to have him. We fired him, right? Is no, that- we, we, didn't, we didn't even hire the guy. But, <laughs> but with Joe Rogan, you know, I think that uh, sooner or later he's going to hear us. He's going to shut his operation down and come work for us. Smart guy. And Tom Brady, what a career. And happy New Year, Chinese New Year. Thanks, Mike McLaughlin. Good night, over and out. Flanagan, you did it again.